Power Athlete Radio. Dr. Dustin Grooms is here to help you understand what the brain has to do with biomechanics. Also, what role does it play in the rehabilitation of injuries, discovering limiting factors, and improving performance? He's also closely studying what therapies are most effective for post-concussion athletes. If the brain is the body's computer, it's safe to say that the mechanics are helpless without it functioning optimally. And that is not just the knowledge that I have gained from watching the Matrix trilogy over and over again. Luckily, we have super smart people like Dr. Grooms researching to find out what you can do to stimulate the mind and the body to get all the gains all the time. This is episode 259. What's up? This is Luke. Why are you whispering? Because... I'm not sure. <laughs> you just wanted to be different? Yeah. Who fucking knows? Because people would be like, hang on. I'm curious. People are going to cower down and be like, what's he going to say? But no, Anything actually, important? I just think they probably are like turning up the podcast. And this is where we say it's time for another episode of the Premier <laughs> Podcast. In strength and conditioning. Ladies and gentlemen, we are literally going to dissect the brain, kind of. Literally. literally uh, today. But first, before we get into our, our guest, who is a smart fucking kid, I mean, young guy, right? He's my age. Yeah. Well, a, well he's... He looks a lot better than you do. Um, well, he's, you know, he's been in a clinical setting. Texas has been traveling the world, mm-hmm. teaching the word, spreading the gospel of power yeah. athletes. Speaking mm-hmm. of spreading the, the gospel for power athlete, Calling... We have a methodology course... Calling all coaches. On the line. Well, hang start. on. Hang on. So here's... Let, let's talk about who signs up for this thing, right? So we we've talked Everybody? about... Listen, registration is open for semester five of the methodology course. We're going to talk about what you get in a second, but what, who is this co- course for? Like, it, it is for any coach that is working with average Joe's normal clients, or if you are a performance sport coach, and more importantly, the one that warms John's heart is any parent of an athlete who plans on interrogating a fucking strength and conditioning coach or like making a decision. You better have a pretty comprehensive knowledge when you go ask questions. Oh, you're going to train my kid. Yeah. What are you going to do? You should have the knowledge be armed with the knowledge so that you can make an educated choice because i think parents you're only going to have if just remembering my childhood you're only going to have a certain window to influence your kid and you could probably coach them and get them pretty far but at some point it's just not going to fucking work anymore because you're a parent right and you're gonna have to go out they're gonna have to go out into the wild either if someone you're going to take them to a private clinic or their their sport coach is going to force them into it right and having that base level of knowledge is going to fucking be absolutely essential i mean we've got uh, i'd say maybe 10 to 15 percent of the guys that sign up guys and gals who sign up for the methodology course and even get their block one are in it like selfishly for family yeah so and, and anyone so during our office hours yesterday so meet weekly to discuss any questions that students have about the course and it's just free formats and a, a video link and connect i was surprised by the amount of people that weren't professional coaches so we had mothers, we had girls that were just getting into or want to teachers that want to get into the fitness side of things to then help their not student athletes, just their students with a base level of understanding of movement. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of the course, too, is we teach you how to teach people to move. Ladies and gentlemen, at your own pace, you enroll, you have office hours weekly at varying times to accommodate varying schedules, and varying time zones from yours truly, Tex McQuilkin and we unlock 
the, the core principles of training, whether again, it's fitness or performance-based training, and we are in it to make better coaches. And whether or not you believe this, even if you are not a professional, that's an air quote people, professional, we are all coaches in one form or another. Because if you're jacked, if you got those traps that pop and delts, you know, are capped like with cantaloupes like myself, you know, people are going to invariably ask you. <laughs> yeah, what's going on with those traps and the sunken bird chest? It just hey, doesn't whoa, correlate. Whoa, whoa, They're going to ask you what's going on. And you don't want to be that fucking donkey who's like, I don't know. I just do whatever I feel like. No, you want to have an educated answer and you can influence change in people. We are all coaches, ladies and gentlemen. So that is who we are looking to, to work with. If you are interested in signing up for the Power Athlete Methodology level one course we are currently enrolling you have two weeks left ladies and gentlemen head to pahq.co slash pa-academy and you'll see that link right there bing bang boom enroll listen yes it's an investment this course is at your own pace it's five hours of lecture it's a 136 page manual it's 44 lessons nine sections. sections. <laughs> Did I already say that? And it's fucking, it's not, it is not boring. Want to know why? Because Tex wrote it and it was really fucking boring. And then me and John came in and made it fucking <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we know it's not boring. No, it's good. It's good. But uh, it, ladies, I strongly encourage you, if you have any questions, just hit us up. You can hit academy at powerathletehq.com if you have any questions you want to ask us. If you just go to the page, uh, there's a place to submit questions. And uh, I think that's all we got to say about that. But you have two weeks left, and we're pro- it's probably halfway sold out. So don't fucking snooze and be that guy who's like, oh, I missed it. But here's also what I want to talk about. Me and Tex were poking around all of our podcasting platforms, right? We got Google Play, we're on Google Play Music, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher. I think we're on FM something now, uh, Radio FM, so you can play on Alexa. So if you say like, hey, Alexa, uh, play the Power Athlete Radio podcast. I'm working on getting that set up. Or our tech team is. That's me, guys. Um, I thought you outsourced that to Bangladesh. <laughs> I did, and it didn't work as well. But hey, if you're a Stitcher guy or gal, leave us a fucking review. Honestly, just a more recent one because these yeah, people something are about reviewing the content, like the, not just profanity. Well, no, oh, no, no. Literally, I read one yesterday. It said I listened to all six episodes, <laughs> and the audio, the quality is shit. <laughs> we're at we're at episode two hundred and sixty six. Yeah, so we need some updated reviews. And honestly, if you have something that's a critique and adaptive feedback, I'll throw that to Kara Miller, aka Logan's life coach. But let us know. Let's just get some updated yeah, fucking adaptive feedback. Adaptive feedback matters. And shameless five star reviews. I mean, it's that, is that too much to ask? Well, I'd like to believe that uh, rocks stars mm. yes rock stars would also be a, uh, a rate of six stars on itunes <laughs> or as close as you can get to that i love it i'm in i want 10 stars well there's only five so log in with two accounts and then fucking vote <laughs> oh. twice. <laughs> that's it uh ladies and gentlemen our guest today uh is fucking uh, oh like honestly kind of reminds me of a young dr tom oh yeah he's doing awesome things yeah, so we have Dustin Grooms on the show today. How did you link up with Dustin again? Well, Dr. Brian Mann dropped his name. So we had episode, ooh, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, a few ago. 249, I believe. So right before 250. So Dr. Mann dropped his name and dropped his research. And then we asked Brian, hey, man, you got to link us up. And then we reached out, dropped that episode to Dustin. And he's like, man, y'all are hilarious. 
especially yeah. that smart So this guy one. was on. So he listened to our one podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, he, that text wasn't on. No, I was ding ding. John, you I believe you stepped out for that one. No. Just oh yeah. <laughs> well, but, well, as you really, this is the Power of the Radio podcast featuring special guest John Walburn. Because I'm hosted by Luke Summers and Tex McQuilkin featuring Power Athlete CEO. Listen, man, as a CEO, you can't be a podcast host. We're doing you a favor. You don't want to slow oh, it I'm, down. Oh, believe me, I am totally fine with this idea. Yeah, and, and it means that, like, eventually we'll squeeze you off the fucking show, and then we don't, ha- like, you're just featured. Well, if we you mean kind of, wait, wait, is, is, is this kind of be like a Barbell Shrugged where all of a sudden they all quit and they just handed it to other dudes and people were like. No, 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 no. If we have time and our busy schedule, John, we'll book you for an episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, is, that, in, is that like when Luke and I have meetings and I tell you not to listen? Well, yeah, I'll be like, uh, I'll be like earmuffs. <laughs> Luke and, yeah. The adults are talking over There's here. There's a wall here. Don't you look at us. <laughs> so, so get back in your glass box of emotion enough about us let's get on with the show dustin grooms everybody dustin what is up you guys sound great for being in a garage wait room man actually this is a massive building it's not a it's a technically a garage it's not a garage we got all these cars getting worked on yeah but that's that's more of a shop and you have you have a kid in here who pretends to be a mechanic I mean, for, you know, DJ, so we got a guy you can't see over here, Dustin, okay. but DJ supposedly knows everything there is to know about these truck V trucks that Tex drives, but there's a simple problem with the hard start for Tex that no one can figure out on the most simple vehicle in the world. I'm, I'm shocked. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm going with Tex user error. What? I followed it's your step by step. Is part of the a car rolling down a hill or something from one of the podcasts? No, that was me, and that was weather related. That was inclement related. Inclement weather. Uh, so I'm wait a minute. User error. Take <laughs> me, uh, take me through. So it takes you three times to get it started in the morning. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, that's if that's that's the process. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's the process. Like I don't know, like that's just the process. Yeah, thirty-two year old truck. It's fine. Yeah, that, and with like eighteen thousand miles or thirty thousand. I got it. Yeah, I got it down to a system. Yeah. That's every, every one of those trucks has some weird quirk that you have to know on mine. I had to like bang on the dash three times and I would just be like, <laughs> I would do this. I'd bang on it three times and she would start right up. If I didn't bang on it, she wouldn't start. John, I don't know if you remember uh, listening to like an Adam Carolla and someone else, I forget who he did it with podcast where they basically pick apart the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. And Adam Carolla is kind of a gearhead and he's like, you know what I fucking hate about these fucking Fast and Furious movies is Vin Diesel is always just opening up some old rickety dusty Bill, barn. Bill Simmons? Yeah, I think? Simmons. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they pull this fucking this sheet off of a you know, a 1978 fucking Nin- what? 1968. 1968 Challenger, whatever. And and you know what? The car's been sitting there for fucking 30 years. I built this with my dad. And he sits in that fucking car, turns the key, and then next thing you know, he's fucking boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, yeah. I got news for you, people. That's not how it fucking works in the real world. No, the gas hasn't turned to like fucking so turpentine. That's that's the one thing about the fast movies. No, no, no. <laughs> there no. are so that's, much but that is, bullshit. Of the, there are so many fucking things that him and Simmons do a great job of like picking apart all the ridiculous shit and fucking Corolla does a great job, you know, in just his well, very dry matter of fact, like fuck this. Human. It's really the, uh, the small things in those movies that drive me absolutely crazy. Like the fact that uh, I don't know how many gears they have in their standard gearbox because mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody upshift and downshift so much. Like I like I, I watch them in shift. a quarter mile. Well, no, it, it, it's like it's like when I watch Street Outlaws and they somehow make. I mean, they're running eight miles, which is like 
three to four seconds tops. And uh, they somehow make the race look like it's 10 seconds. And I'm like, how the, wait a minute. And they never show you how, how far they're racing. You know, it's, it just, yeah, it drives me crazy. But they're just always upshifting, downshifting, upshifting, downshifting. I know it's probably like, I strongly recommend those podcast episodes in your next road trip. It, like the Simmons and Corolla Fast and Furious, you'll fucking find them, people. But hey, listen, I'm glad that Dustin, we got to talk about what we're fucking working on over here at Power Athlete HQ, which is just Fast and Furious recap discussions. But dude, what's going on? Thanks for jumping on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, give us a give us the give us the long form intro, man. So what are you what are you up to? How'd we find you? How'd you find us? What's going on? Sure. So uh, I'm a, my background is an athletic trainer, and I was a strength coach for several years before doing a PhD that ended up being in neuroscience. An ankle taper, huh? You know, ice and stem. Now, some people in the field resent that. Ankle tapers. You know, I, I, ATCs to me, I'm like, hey, tape up my ankles, give me some ice and stem. I need a little uh, iontophoresis, maybe a little uh, modalities. What do you got? You got a little uh, ultrasound over there? I just, yeah. No, that's just my standard busting of balls of all ATCs. No, as you should, because uh, actually that's part of why I ended up doing a PhD, because I was pretty disappointed at what we could do in sports medicine. And even for strength conditioning and performance, I'm sure you guys, because you guys are so plugged into this kind of stuff, um, I've grown to be, when I was a clinician, I was pretty disappointed. Like, this is all we had? Like, you go through your education and you think you're going to make everyone stronger, faster, better. No one's going to get hurt again on my watch. And then you end up, you probably all had this experience as strength coaches. You pour your heart into a kid for months, whether it's after an injury or whatever, and then they go and get hurt. And uh, I felt like medicine sort of let us down. And that's what started me on this track to go back. Um, one of my first experiences, I was an intern at the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, you guys, you guys know Carson, Carson Palmer? You remember him? Sure. Yep. So I would say that into my classes. And every year I make that. Uh, I give this description and less and less kids know who he is. And I'm like, slowly. It's a sad day. It is sad. No one remembers. But, uh, and so I know, uh, John, you were in the NFL, so you can probably test to this. Like, basically, if you have money, you just buy everything. And if a guy gets hurt, he basically like lives in the training room. I don't know if it was like that for you guys. Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, when, you know, injuries are kind of an interesting thing. Um, a lot of times I didn't put a lot of trust in, in our ATCs, uh, just because I felt like, and I'll just give you an example. I sprained my ankle and, uh, ankle was super swollen and, uh, they were like, you know, Hey, you got to do all this stuff. And, you know, Hey, we want to get you in. We want to contrast. We're going to do this, this, and this. And, uh, we had an old time country doc, uh, guy, I think he used to be a, uh, you know, horse doc, uh, you know, like worked on horses and us. Right. And so he comes comes in and I see him and I'm like, Hey doc, uh, you still work on horses? He's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, uh, you find me any, um, um, oh shit. Um, DMSO. Yeah. DMSO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he like looks at me and he's like, yeah, I can get you some DMSO. And so he, uh, like, uh, they're still working on me. This was in the morning, comes back in the afternoon with DMSO, gives it to me. And I, uh, you know, and I, I found one of the older trainers and I was like, Hey man, I need you to put the DMSO on. And he kind of looked at me and was like, all right, let's do it. Puts a DMSO on and all these young ATCs are in there, all their young interns and all the young guys are like watching this and like, what, what is this? What is this? I'm like, hold on. And literally the next morning I show up and my ankle's totally dry. There's a little bruising on it, all fixed, and I went out there and played. And you would have thought that I had, like, brought fire to cavemen, that these guys, like, couldn't fathom that uh, all the fucking modalities that they had, all the voodoo bullshit. And um, 
you know, it's like uh, just some regular chiropractic, uh, you know, going in and, you know, getting a little soft tissue work. You got something like a DMSO. I mean, it just, it, it's amazing to me how like uh, pigeonholed, you know, guys get into and, and you know, even like, hey, we're going to tape this up. And then you realize about 20 minutes after the tape, once you get sweaty, it's pretty much fucking useless. So I, I don't know. I just for me, um, I was not a, a training room guy, which which I used to tell the young guys, don't hang out in the training room. Don't eat in the training room. Don't be one of those dudes that likes to go in there and sleep. Stay the fuck out of the training room because the dudes that stay in a lot in the training room tend to get hurt more often. But I mean, you know, the the perception of the armchair quarterback is all these NFL guys are making all this fucking cash. Did a lot of those guys invest and outsource like when it would come to an injury or, or training? Uh, or? I think the guys that were switched on, you know, a guy like Tom Brady does. I mean, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I laughed when I was, when I went to the Patriots, uh, Tom had like six of his own lockers. He had his own like training room, had his own guy, like he had his own shit. And uh, I remember he was like, Hey man, uh, um, you know, I'm not using my massage guy. Do you want a massage? And I was like, yeah, I, <laughs> you know, like, but like, I, I, how many guys are like that? Not really. Um, I just think that uh, at least when I played, guys were extremely unsophisticated. Uh, and I, that's the word I'm going to use, unsophisticated with a lot of these things. And I remember even telling the young guys, because my personal favorite was when the doctors came in and evaluated you, they wouldn't tell you what was wrong. They would go talk to the head coach first. And then they would come out and tell you what was wrong. And I just remember being like... I need to get my second opinion. So for me, I was always real proactive. I went, I got my second opinion. I had my own people that were not related to the team. And then also went and got physicals and checked out by docs in the off season, just because, uh, I, and you're, you're nodding your head. Cause you know, like there's, you know, the team has a vested interest in looking out for the team, not necessarily the player. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. I remember driving one player to see the position and he's asking me what I think. And I'm like a college kid intern. And I'm like, man, this is not a good system if you are that nervous about seeing our position. Um, so, yeah, a lot of them got second opinions. But my first experience, the reason why I was really disappointed, so he blows out his ACL. And um, so I'm an entrance. So I basically get him Gatorade and, like, wash his car, whatever he needs and stuff, you know. But uh, that was part of the rehab team, very important role. He said I make great orange Gatorade, so I really pride myself. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> Funny, it's in a bottle. <laughs> You're like, well, you crack the ball, you pour it in a cup. He's like, yeah, you make great orange Gatorade. You're like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, it was the right ice to water to Gatorade powder ratio. <laughs> ah, yes. And that's, so, that's got to be a resume item, right? Oh, yeah. It's top of it's the head headline. <laughs> Best orange Gatorade mixer there is. PhD in neuroscience goes down, down below that. Uh, obviously. But um, we had a great phys, phys, uh, physical therapist. Great, he was a great PT athletic trainer. And I was asking him, I was like, so is he ever going to get back to where he was? And he's like, I don't know, maybe. And I was like, what the fuck do you mean you don't know? It's like. 2010 or whatever the hell it was and i was like what do you mean don't and i was so disappointed and then i go on to get a master's degree and you kind of learn how to look into literature and stuff and i go in there and i'm like we really don't know what we're doing at all and then i was working as a strength coach and athletic trainer at a small d3 college and you'd have kids get hurt so i'd have a kid blow out his knee and i would take him to the physician i'd take him to the surgery i do all his therapy and then i do a strength condition i get him back to sport and then he goes and he blows out like his other side or he's just cutting and i was like man this is uh i mean as you guys know it's it's heartbreaking like you pour your life into these kids well the um the interesting thing in what you're talking about is like, yeah, people don't really know how the body's going to react. There's just a lot of theoretical. Like for me in my rookie year, I ruptured, I ruptured my patellar tendon. 
They come in and the doctor tells me your career's over. Never had anybody ever come back from this surgery. I'm in surgery that night. They stitch it back up. I blew the retinaculum, blew, blew everything. So uh, I couldn't, didn't get out of bed for three weeks. Didn't really bend my knee for three months because the idea was you don't want to stretch the tendon out because you don't want a long liver. So they got to make sure everything's nice and, and firm. Uh, damaged the nerve. I couldn't even do a leg lift. And um, it was one of those deals where I was like, man, there's no way I'm coming back. And actually it was a, you know, a, a call and a, you know, introduction to, you know, what Charlie Francis was doing with EMS. And, the, you know, literally within three weeks of using the EMF devices, uh, it was as if like my central nervous system, everything just wired up and I could all of a sudden leg lift and, you know, went to squatting and ended up coming back and squatting 16 games. Uh, if I hadn't reached out outside and found some other things that were outside of the spectrum, uh, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation today. So it was uh, just out of my own frustration and realizing that, um, you know, the team is at first point, like you got to remember who signs the paychecks, how it all fits. They don't always have the vested in. I mean, even though you hope that they do through a Hippocratic oath and a fiduciary right. responsibility to get people back. I just don't, I think sometimes uh, there's some limitations into the whole deal. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that we could be doing better. And it sounded like you kind of ran into the same deal. I just think for any type of player, uh, if you're not proactive in terms of understanding what's available to you in terms of how to maximize everything, then I think you're going to end up uh, behind the eight ball. Yeah, it's kind of sad. We have to rely on our patients to be proactive. You know, ideally, we would look out for them and provide that for them. But it's not always the case. So um, I kind of was – so I was just – I was a young clinician. I was really – uh, kind of arrogant. I kind of thought no one's going to get re-injured on my watch. And I was, and then I just grew to be really disappointed. So I went back to a PhD and I know you guys, you guys had Tim Hewitt on before, uh, maybe a year ago or yep. so. Yep. A while back. Uh, he's ACL professor, yeah. doctor out of Ohio state. I'd have he's to look up Mayo the episode now. number. Oh, he's, he is. We got to catch up. He, he's at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. He talked a lot about DC. Maybe, maybe I'll reach out and get him back. Okay. Yeah, he's very good. He's done a he's done a lot of, of really cool studies since you guys had him on. But uh, he was at Ohio State when I was there for my PhD, and I started out thinking, well, I'm gonna try to find the answer to what we're missing. And so I started doing biomechanics, like Dr. Hewitt does, and a lot of I know you guys, uh, Dr. Mann, he talked about a lot of biomechanics where people land on force plates and you look at how people move and stuff like that. And so I spent my first two years studying that because I thought the answer would be it's got to be in how people move and how they're loading and how therapy's not addressing how you're moving. But then I realized there are thousands to millions of neural computations that happen just for you to stand and maintain your postural control. So then I started to study that and started to dive down, down, and then ended up switching over to neuroscience and trying to figure out how does the brain generate movement and then how does injury and therapy modify it. And so eventually, I basically found that a lot of the therapies we do aren't necessarily optimizing neural control because we're just so focused on that final output in the form of biomechanics or how you're moving. I find that incredibly fascinating. Honestly, most people go to get a PhD just to understand an old way, and it sounds like you were extremely motivated to push the field. Yeah, I think I'm the only athletic trainer that uh, does brain imaging or neuroimaging. I haven't ran into anyone else yet. Um, have you done uh, like neuroimaging in relationship to like injuries, for example, where, you know, guys that have ACL tears tend to take damage to the frontal lobe kind of a deal? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Because, so. uh, I, you know, I always wondered, um, 
like, and this is just purely observational. And yeah, this asking is, for a friend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at, like, I look for patterns. I think that's why, you know, in terms of programming and as a strength coach and working with people and trying to get people stronger, I'm, really, I'm pretty good at seeing patterns and like, hey, like this work for this guy and this kind of, you know, how you kind of put the whole thing together. It just seemed that uh, uh, like guys, like for example, if I played on the left side and all the strikes and the blows that I was making with the left side of my head, it tended to be opposite sides of the body. So like a, like a guy who was playing on the left side tended to always damage his right side, and it just kind of seemed like to be this kind of an opposite deal. You know, the you know, guy plays on the left and goes out and tears a right ACL. A guy on the right goes out and tears a left ACL. And it was just kind of observational noticing this over the years, and whenever people like, oh, this guy got hurt, he had something catastrophic, I'd be like, uh, what side of the ball did he play on? Like, what position? And it was just kind of just this kind of just observation over 10 years. And I just wondered if, uh, if it came down to either dominance, like you're always stepping or moving that way. And maybe like the backside leg is not nearly as strong, or maybe it had to do something neurological with the hitting. So I smile. Cause like your, basically your observation is, uh, pretty accurate. So the last few years there's been this interest in uh, like a couple of physicians or athletic trainers or somebody, I forget where the first might've been out of Chapel Hill was the first group these guys that would get concussions, like you said, or, and then they were like, well, it seems like after they get a concussion, they go on to get ACL tears or sprain their ankle or whatever. And so they looked at their data and they're like, yeah, that three months after you return to play, you're more likely to get an ankle sprain or get an, another musculoskeletal injury. And then if you look at all the neuroimaging data after a concussion, one of the big areas that get this, it's get, sorry, get disrupted is this corpus callosum, which connects your left brain to your right brain, right? And a lot of what we call interhemispheric communication. Basically, one side of your brain communicates to the other side. And it's very important for lower extremity movement. So your upper extremity is pretty well lateralized. That means about 80% of the neurons that allow me to move my right hand come from the left side of my brain. But for your legs, it's more like 60-40. So 60% of the drive for my right leg comes from the left side of my brain. Because your legs are meant to work in tandem for gait, especially if you want to walk. So we see as we get a lot, almost everyone, a lot of the studies that look at brain change after concussion, that region is damaged. So your ability to communicate left or right is degraded. And then you're more likely to get a musculoskeletal injury. And then a group out of Delaware, they just showed that, you, you're probably familiar with this, the impact test guy, you probably, I know you played lacrosse, that concussion test. Yep. So if you are a little bit slower on your reaction time and visual processing speed, you're more likely to blow out your knee in that year. So you just your baseline ability to respond, regardless of how you move, how strong you are, all that stuff, that alone can predict your risk of getting a non-contact ACL injury. So there definitely is a connection. Well, just observationally, where it started was uh, I was playing left guard and I took a knee to the head. Uh, I went to cut a guy through my head in front and we tried to do a little reverse hip block and the guy ended up kind of stepping and putting a knee into my forehead, knocked me unconscious. I think like... I played two series uh, that I don't really remember. Oddly enough, I didn't know where I was, but I knew the, what to do on the plays. And I came out, and uh, I remember I was super dinged up to the point where they just went and hid my helmet because I kept trying to go back in, and the lady just yeah. literally hid my helmet. And uh, I went and I um, uh, like went and saw a doc who was kind of a you know a little bit of voodoo. Ended up kind of clearing me out, feeling better, and then I came back, and I want to say six weeks later, tore the ACL on my right knee, just running in the open field on a reverse. So I pulled, planted, 
I mean, I'd run the play a million times just out of nowhere. I slipped and fell and tore an ACL. And so it always kind of like, always kind of made me think, I'm like, God, I wonder if that knee to the left side of my brain. And then when I went and saw Dr. Amen, they did a scan and found that the part of my brain that was damaged was on the left side. And oddly enough, I tore my right ACL and uh, my right shoulder is what's dinged up on me. So I, I always thought that like there had to be some correlation and then just 10 years of playing, you just tend to notice patterns. Like a guy goes out and like rolls an ankle in kind of a non-contact way or can't load this and that's what gives out and it always <coughs> ends up being that kind of opposite side. So that's always cool when uh, you can kind of make an observation and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and kind of validates it a little. No, absolutely. And this connection between concussions and lower extremity injury is getting a lot more interesting. And I know texting some of your, that one paper with Gary Wilkerson I did with um, neuromechanical responses a lot of that is exploring this connection between neuroscience, biomechanics, human movement, and then concussion, lower extremity injury. But um, you also asked about ACL injury. So a lot of my research so far has been focused in on how does your brain change after the ligament injury? And then how do we design new therapies to fix it? Um, and essentially what I found is that how I was taught to do therapy from the first day all the way to the end is not optimal. If you want, we can dive down that road. Or yeah, please. Let's go. So basically what we found was, so when I first started going down neuroscience, there was, I uh, had to convince the people that did all the brain imaging at Ohio State that I think there's something there because with the ACL injury for how people generate movement, because I'm just seeing this clinically and you probably felt it yourself. I don't know, Luke and Tex, if you guys have had injuries to John's level. No, I'm nope. pretty much bulletproof, honestly, like yeah. fucking uh, Terminator, Terminator style. No, I've had... Except uh, for your groin rounding third hey, in softball. But that was leg and out of triple, as uh, you know, ladies and I gentlemen. Got, well, I got enough for all these guys. I got a torn <laughs> ACL, ruptured patellar tendon. I've had three scopes on that right ACL knee. Uh, what else? I got a right shoulder scope. I'm going to have to go in and get my shoulder cleaned out again. I got probably a number of broken fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Took a helmet to the shin where I broke my fibula clean in half. But uh, good enough, you don't need that bone to really play football. So True. I ended up uh, getting casted three weeks and playing 17 weeks on a broken leg. What else? Yeah, no no joint or anything like that, man. My, I did The reason I had to hang up pads was I was bruising my brain stem. Uh, due to hypolordosis of cerv my cervical spine is what they say. Also now, known just as weakness. weakness. His, his body just. But didn't here's wanna... what you got to admit, John. You know when things start get start to get really rough and like you really have to fight. Like I'll weasel my way into an easier way to do things. Uh, Outsource, well, for example. Yeah. Uh, well, that's how know, that, slip through like. A that's mouse. how we got all these Indian dudes working for Power Athlete. <laughs> Funny joke. Luke did a scan on who works for Power Athlete on Facebook, and it's uh, nothing but guys from Bangladesh seem to be working for Power <laughs> yeah, Athlete. I'm dude. like, Luke, are you outsourcing? Yeah. Them? Oddly enough, Tex wasn't. <laughs> the roster so i don't even know why you're showing up here buddy it's like we're gonna have to let you go fix, fix the glitch uh, work here. are we gonna fire him no we just fix the glitch <laughs> uh it's it yeah the uh uh injuries are the shitty part man i uh I, I just remember when i was a young dude i went out uh went out drinking with uh mark schlereth and uh dave diaz infante who to me were like in their mid thirties and were fucking older than dirt. Yeah, old, yeah. I was like, dude, you guys are fucking old. <laughs> like they're a cobbling around that. I remember uh, stink saying, you know, I've had like 37 surgeries. He goes, I just got to the point where I wanted to see if how fucked up I could be and, and still do the job. <laughs> and so I, I kind of thought about that. And then um, for me, it was like, like I had the, like the final injury uh, when I, I, I hurt my knee, I chipped off a piece of bone in my knee when I was playing for the Patriots. And that was like, 
it for me. I came in and had surgery and the doctor uh, who did the surgery, I think was a little too aggressive and dude, I just never came back from it. But it's kind of like, you kind of know when all of a sudden you go out there and you're like, it just doesn't feel like it used to. And I remember Hugh, Hugh Douglas, who I played with, talking to Rick Burkholder, who was our trainer at the time. He's like, man, have you ever seen a dude who, like, was at a high level and then just one day he couldn't do it? And Rick used to, you know, said, yeah, all the time. Like, just something changes where, like, you go from being able to do it one day to not being able to do it. <clears throat> and I always thought, like, is that um, is that neurological well, thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, and it goes back to what Dr. Bueller, I don't know if you know Craig Bueller from uh, Kaysville, Utah, but he has AMIT, Activated Muscle Integration Technique. And Dr. Bueller's idea is that muscles, and I don't understand the chemistry of this, he, he goes into this idea that uh, as injuries happen, you get this neurological inhibition to firing the muscle, and the muscle turns off, which I think has to be more of a chemical reaction. Uh, I mean, like, I, he's explained it to me. It just doesn't make sense. Um, but long story short, so the idea is that muscles don't fire, then he's able to go through and clear the muscle and get them to fire, which is pretty remarkable. And I remember when I went in to, saw, uh, to see him shortly after I retired, he like tested me and of the hundred or the 300 plus muscles, like over half were turned off. And he's like, uh, and I asked him, like, how could I could do it? And he goes, it could be just one. And he made a point that the best athletes in the world aren't necessarily the best athletes for talent it's just they their bodies find a way to recruit around injuries to continue to do it like all of a sudden your pec you know gets injured and next thing you know your delt's working and now you're still able to do your job whereas another athlete might not be able to recruit in the same way john's pointing at me everybody and he called that uh uh, athletic intelligence or what, what he, he has a funny term for it he's like it's like a athletic intelligence your body finds a way to just be able to execute the task and that's kind of an interesting point between the neurological and the physical. And I think people, like you said, man, like in the rehab process, people are so you know, focused on like, let's measure the quad. I want to make sure your VMO comes right. back. What does the hamstring development look like? Do we see symmetry in the legs? And I remember them constantly like measuring. And uh, I knew I was never going to get the same musculature back that up for my ruptured patellar tendon. So they kept measuring it. And I'm like, shouldn't like my ability to like fire the muscle and be able to jump like they're just... The, I, th I think the way that they, and I think this is the road you're going in, I think the way that they're measuring whether or not you're, you know, healthy on the right track and how they measure progress is totally wrong. So. 100%. So the, basically we're measuring just the final output of the massive amount of neural computations that happens. And the reason why I asked you guys if you had injuries, I know John, you just talked about this, is that you just never quite feel the same. You may not even be able to put your finger on it. And there's what's interesting is there's this varied responses where some people do not get that inhibition. So after an injury, the nervous system does knock down the drive to the muscle surrounding the injury, mostly as a protection mechanism. So that's arthrogenic muscle inhibition. We can go down that path if you want. But basically, therapy today, you, even strength and conditioning, anything, we really focus on how much can you lift, how much force can you quad, how what's your quad look like, how does your perineals react if it's an ankle sprain or whatever, rotator cuff if it's a shoulder. And we don't really consider all of the neural computations that go into it. And so right now, our best tool to measure the human brain, unless you're dead, is to use fMRI or brain scan. So um, we were, one of my first experiments was trying to figure out how can I get you to move your legs so I can figure out how does your brain turn on to move your legs and not have your head move. So if your head moves about a millimeter, so very, very small, then the data is not any good. So basically, it just looks like the whole brain turns on. And so we spent about a year figuring out how to get someone to do a very simple, just laying in the MRI and just simple flexion extension of their knee. 
So there's 45 degrees up to full extension and down. And then some people doubted, especially when I talked to orthopedic surgeons, they're like, there's no way you're going to see a brain activation difference for this very, very simple movement. And then we go and do the study, we get ACL reconstructed guys in there and healthy controls. And basically, if you're a healthy person and you go to generate a quad contraction and then lower your knee down, do it over and over, you essentially, your brain activates mostly what I would call like a sensory motor strategy. So you guys, I know you've had a lot of people on, so you know what proprioception, heard yeah. that term? But let's just pretend you don't know what that sure. term is. What, what, what proprioception is? You know, asking for a friend. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and, uh, so if you just close your eyes and you can still touch your fingertips together, right? Probably most of you can. I don't know what Texas is doing. That's pretty close. Luke did it right. That was good. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> That's perfect. So the one then I would ask, well, how could you do that if you couldn't see where your hands were? Well, it's because you get constant proprioceptive feedback or where your joints are in space without vision because of your ligaments, muscles, skin, they all give you input to the nervous system. So if you've never torn your ACL, you can do that task and you'll get sensory motor activation and some cerebellar activation, which cerebellum allows you to do automatic sort of postural control corrections and sort of if your knee's in a bad position. So we actually have a paper coming out now, um, going back to what John said, when you did that cut, it's essentially your cerebellum, which would automatically would sense that your knee's going to this position of no return and it fires your glute med to correct it, sends an impulse down. So what we've shown is we did this large, large study on concussion and we're looking for concussions. We baseline scanned a bunch of people and a couple of people went on to get non-contact ACL injuries. And it's the people who had this disruption in how the, the cortex, so like the superficial layer, communicates with the cerebellum that predicted their chance to go on to get injury. So that was like a prospective study. But what we found, and the people, we can go more into that if you want, but what we found that people after an injury is that if you're healthy, you have the sensory motor strategy, use proprioception, you can do the task pretty neurologically simple. If you've blown out the ACL, what we found was you recruit this area in your brain called the lingual gyrus. So it's back in the occipital cortex on the center of your brain. And essentially what that region does, it integrates where you are visual spatial wise and proprioception. So right now, if Tex reaches for the keyboard and he looks where his keyboard is, once he touches it and he sees it, that lingual gyrus goes check. That keyboard's where I think it is visually and it's where my proprioception's tell me it is tactilely with your fingers. Now, if you have any sort of error, so you guys probably all had this experience, you're going down the steps, and maybe you think there's another step and you kind of misstep, or you go off a curb, or whatever, where you make a slight error, where you think where you are visually is, doesn't match the sensory feedback. You thought there was another step. That area goes on fire if you have this error. So it's basically this region is checking Am I visually where I think I am and where I am, my sensory where I think I am? And if you blow it on your knee, your ACL has, a, it's about 5 to 10% of these receptors, which tell you where your knee is in space. So they're gone forever. You get the reconstruction. There's some data to say you may get it back in 10 to 15 years, but it's never going to be the same. So you essentially have this low-level sensory error sent into your brain constantly. And so you essentially reweight and you use vision to program motion. That's one of the biggest changes in the brain because you shouldn't even need that area to turn on. And some of the other changes are your brain will activate this area called the secondary somatosensory area, which is you have your primary somatosensory area that allows you to feel, know where you are in space, stuff like that. The secondary one, it processes mostly pain, 
or different responses. And in our study, everyone was already returned to their sport. They weren't in pain, but their brain activates as if they are still experiencing pain. Because usually the ACL event's pretty traumatic, doesn't feel good. So just engaging in a knee movement, your brain will activate a little bit as, as if it's in pain. And the other regions that activated your cerebellar activity actually went down. So your sort of automatic responses were reduced. And then your motor cortex activity went up. So you had to really consciously think about moving a lot more. And one thing we do in therapy is you probably experience this. Right when you get out of surgery, they have, what do they have you do? They have you stare at your knee and you try to make a quad set and a quad contraction. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Quad sets. So, and then once I, so once I finished this first study three or four years ago, I was like, holy crap, our very basic first exercise in therapy is allowing people to use vision to program their knee in space. But then we're going to ask them to play football, lacrosse, whatever. And I've never played a sport where I can stare at my knee the whole time. And I was just like, oh my gosh, our entire like fundamental phase one is setting people up to fail. Wow. And I was, I was pretty disappointed. But in hindsight, I mean, if you think about it, I, every time I present this data, every strength coach, clinician, almost everyone except the orthopedic surgeons, almost everyone else who deals with these patients on a regular basis, they're all like, yeah, that, that makes sense that they would have this strategy. But the brain images sort of help sell people on it. So I would think for the very first day, therapy has to change to address this. Because when you go back to sport, you can't rely on it. Now, is there any um, deviation in terms of like procedures, you know, versus like a hamstring cadaver, middle third patellar tendon hamstring? Um, I just uh, I just met with uh, Dr. Ants, who's uh, I don't know if you know Adam Ants, but he's the head of Regenix or regenerative yeah, yeah. surgery for Dr. Andrews down at the Andrews Institute in uh, Pensacola, Florida, or Gulf Breeze, and we were rapping about um, like. Uh, when we first started, they were using middle thirds, patellar tendon, and then they went to this idea of uh, cadavers and hamstrings, and they ended up realizing that your body in some way, uh, you know, knows that the tissue isn't yours and, and is able to kind of push it back out and kind of rejects it, and they've, they've gone back to the idea that the middle third is by far the best. You know, my thing is that it sucks to destroy one joint to fix another piece. So he's like, you know, does the cost outweigh the benefit? Like for me, they use the middle third of my patellar tendon. The problem is, is that um, I think my rehab was shit and I ended up developing terrible pretend, uh, patellar tendonitis in my left knee, which ended up resulting in a ruptured patellar tendon about four years later. And so uh, like, and then after it ruptured, it healed back and it's, it was probably the best thing. It cured my patellar tendon. You know, imagine that, uh, uh, the tendonitis. I've never had tendonitis in the knee again, thank God. But and this is, it's kind of interesting you said, and I, I you know, and I'd, I'd like to go back to a little point you said, you said some athletes, it doesn't bother them in the same way. Case in point, my older brother ruptured his, uh, his ACL in college and was never the same. Came out of surgery and never wanted to play, could never step and was just literally like, is it was as if could that be psychological though or he he just i, I just I mean, remember him a mixture of everything i just remember him telling like i can't push off the same nothing feels the same uh like i'm not as strong i can't like it just he just said everything felt off for me um i never really noticed it it was just one of those things where for some reason the minute that i put it in drive and put my foot on the gas the result was always the same and I never was really, um, you know, hyper aware. It doesn't feel right. And I'm like, none of this feels right. I'm standing out here in 100 degree weather with fucking, <laughs> you know, 30 pounds of pads on beating my head into a fucking wall. Like, I'm never thinking anything's going to feel good. But could it be like a biopsychosocial mix in the sense that, okay, so uh, your bro was in college, right? Yeah. So he's playing for pride. 
you know, and like D three all star, D three all star. But here you are, like uh, kind of rags to riches. You have there's much more on the line of you just saying, ah, you know, I can't do it anymore. It's like, no, fuck this. I'm going to do it. One, because you're going to live, you know, well, 10 but, awesome years and two beat wholesale ass. And But this was in so college. I mean, so I was oh, in, yeah, in true, my true, third true. year true. of college. And, right. um, you know, it was just, it just was one of those things where uh, for some reason, um, and like, it, it's pretty interesting. Like, as I go back and I kind of like reflect on a lot of this shit and I was, uh, I got a question the other day and somebody was like, you know, how come you don't haven't been writing as much on talk to me, Johnny. And so I was at the airport Side yesterday. Hustles. Well, as I was working on it, I kind of, I, uh, the big thing is, um, I kind of stopped writing when I had effectively talked about all the stuff that I had learned. And I realized that I needed to reboot myself to learn more information and I needed to decide which direction I wanted to go into. And uh, the thing that I'm really kind of geeking out on is I think that there's a better way to attack not only injuries, but training uh, with some of the modality stuff like the blood flow restricted training. Um, I've been really kind of geeked out on this idea of like, how do you maximize and uh, increase um, stem cell count within your body? Uh, there's some really interesting stuff that's talking about red light therapy, but like the big one is blood flow restricted training. And I had an opportunity to sit with uh, Dr. Sato, who was the guy from Katsu and he made some really interesting observations about uh, post injury, them like a ruptured ACL, them doing, uh, blood flow restricted training, uh, pretty like two and three times a day just to try to drive androgens to the deal. And he said that they, for the skiers and he didn't necessarily give me the protocols, even though he sent me stuff, but he had some protocols that they had done with the uh, Japanese skiers and their speed skaters for torn ACLs that like was, uh, getting these guys back in like weeks and not months back into, you know, you think about speed skating, extremely proprioceptive, being able to, you know, push, force, absorb, reforce. And, uh, you know, and then all, basically the G's that they, those guys get on the outside. So I think there's pretty interesting uh, research on that. And actually Ken Ford and uh, Dr. Ants are working on a deal in terms of blood flow restricted training for this very stuff. And then being able to use EMS like the power dots and how to use, you know, cryo chambers. And I think that, that uh, what I think they're approaching is like a holistic way to attack this thing. Like, like what do you do for the athlete to prevent this doesn't happen? And if it does happen, because injuries are always going to happen, how do you maximize their ability to come back and, and not just, you know, ice and stem and some, you know, fucking uh, ultrasound, yeah. you know? And uh, unfortunately, those are kind of the tools that a lot of the ATCs and the trainers and, you know, in the NFL, the ATC also is the PT for a lot of reasons. You know, a lot of times your ATC is right. doing the rehab, so they kind of wear a dual role. Whereas um, I just think... There's a much better way to do it. I mean, I'd much rather have a guy who's got a PhD in neuroscience coming in and helping me figure out how to maximize proprioception and all these other things than some guy who's just good at fucking heel locks. Yeah, yeah. I I try not to go too far into it, but I'm pretty – I get disappointed. Hopefully not. No one's listened to this. That'll be upset. Well, it doesn't matter. Listen to this thing. It's just our, our parents. Oh, okay, yeah. that's good. Hey, Ma. Uh, <laughs> it, you, um, what about, um, you know, like, like, let's look at all the different variables, right? Uh, sure. You know, in terms of injuries. I mean, I always wondered, too, if it's like, you know, not only concussion, but also is there diet relation? Is there, you know, training style? Like, hey, I come out of a high-intensity hit program that's using some form of hammer strength. Now, all of a sudden, you ask a guy to go out and put him in a situation. Is he o- not? Open loop. Is he not, uh, has he not trained to absorb and reduce force in terms, you know, with, uh, you know, using proprioception? I mean, I, I had a guy ask me once, you know, how come a squat is better than a leg press? And I'm like, for what? He's like, strength. And I'm like, what kind of strength? 
we talking about just like bodybuilder leg mass? Like, I mean, probably a leg press is probably better in terms of uh, than a squat, maybe. Uh, but what is it about the squat that makes it more beneficial to sport? And I'm like, balance. You can't fall over in a leg press. So now you're looking at how to move my body in space through full range of motion movements, challenging posture and position, instead of just sitting in a position and just pushing. So now you look at like a deviation between training styles of like, yeah, they're both working the leg in the same way, but like it's more than just working the muscle. Now we're looking at proprioception, balance, force, compensatory acceleration, all these key factors. So then, you know, I mean, how like, like, and I think what you probably look at is how do you start kind of, uh, you know, kind of pushing aside different variables. Okay. Like let's, let's look at sleep and eat. Uh, you know, sure. if you were to, I guarantee if you scan brains for guys that slept four hours versus eight hours is dramatically different. So one thing I wanted to hit on when you were talking about the individual responses, John, so like your brother had a different response than you. Have you, um, there's a very interesting bunch of series of work, mostly out of Norway and university of Delaware, where, if you blow out your knee, the standard of care in Europe is to go without surgery. And you know, Delaware succeeded turning guys back to Division One football, like skill positions, no ACL. Just do ACL deficient, do therapy and go. So what um, some of those groups have done is there was an interesting study. It was a small sample size. It's still pretty cool. This uh, essentially they're looking at copers. So copers are people who go without their ACL and they go back to whatever they want. And there's people who are non-copers. They blow out their knee, they either need surgery or they have to drastically change their activity because they can't handle it. And so the co-people are in, so well, what makes you a coper? So if John blows out his ACL, he's like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I can go play, keep playing the NFL or whatever. The copers, what was very interesting with them, when they would just walk to do normal uh, gate biomechanics in the research lab, their hamstrings, would turn on about 100 milliseconds before even a healthy person with an ACL and the people who are non-copers. So their hamstrings just naturally automatically would turn on earlier. And the non-copers, their hamstrings turn on way late. So you've already hit, made heel contact with the ground. And then your hamstrings are turning on way too late trying to catch up to the load. But if you were a coper, which probably you were, if you were able to go back to football and keep playing. Oddly enough, uh, I tore my ACL, had surgery, and then I tore my ACL somewhere towards the uh, end of my career. And I remember uh, just saying, like, them telling me and being like, fuck it. Uh, it I didn't even know I did. Um, so they went yeah. in, and when the guy went to do my scopes, is like, you know, you're missing your ACL. And I'm like, what do you think? He's like, well, dude, if uh, he goes, one, like your hamstring insertion and everything looks fine. He's like, just see how it feels. I never even wore a brace and never had any problem. So yeah, if you can restore that dynamic stability, if you have a really good rehab person, rehab therapist, like the University of Delaware group's very good. They do not do modalities and stem and junk. They really, really push you. And they'll actually what they'll do is if you really want to get back without your ACL, they basically strap you to a leg press and they put a bite bar in your mouth and then you get an E stem, like you, know, you see Rocky Four, right, with the big Russian guy. So you get E stem on your quad. And they jack it up until you can almost sit yourself up out of the chair. So we have so much quad activities. They want your muscle to recover and get rid of that neural inhibition as fast as possible. And if you get that inhibition knocked down, you recover quad strength really fast. A lot of those neural changes don't happen. And what this group showed with the hamstring activity, they did this technique called a somatosensory evoked potential. It basically means wearing an EEG cap so I can see and sense how the surface of your brain is activating. And I stimulate a nerve wherever I'm interested in. So they would basically stimulate the perineal nerve, which comes up and innervates your ACL and then goes up to your brain. So if I stimulate Luke and Tex, stimulate perineal nerve, and I look 
the area in your brain where your ACL should be for the sensory cortex, you'll see it'll light up. Very good. You guys have an intact neural innervation to your knee. Now, if we stimulate John's, his is probably going to be gone because he's had the ACL rupture a couple times and it's not there anymore, so it's absent. What's interesting, what this group, what they originally went in thinking, well, the people who have some left, some sort of connections left, they're probably going to be the people who do the best because their brain looks like the healthy people. They have a little bit of that innervation left. They found the opposite. So it's the people where it's absent, the brain senses that I have an instability in my knee, and then it has these motor compensations, activates the hamstrings earlier. So probably for you, John, you probably didn't realize it, but the reason why you're able to keep your knee stable even without the ACL is that your nervous system already made compensations to allow you to have what we call dynamic stability. So your static stability is terrible probably. You probably do a Lachman or that KT-1000. You probably have a lot of tibial movement on your femur. because. Uh, actually, I don't. Uh, the only time, uh, so when I tore my ACL, uh, they didn't even know my ACL was torn until they went in to scope the knee for uh, what they thought was torn meniscus. Because when they drained the knee, there was no blood in it. Um, oh, wow. So they uh, they were like, oh, and then the knee filled back up. They said he tore, his, or they, they thought I tore my uh, my lateral meniscus. So they went in and did the, uh, the guy said, hey, you'll be in and out 30 minutes. We're going to clean this thing up. you go play. And I woke up in the CPM. And uh, he's like, man, we went in there and you had no ACL. So I had torn my ACL some part in the future, I mean, in the past and didn't know it. And he said, it wasn't until we got you under that all of a sudden when we went to go do an ACL check that all of a sudden it was like, because when they checked me uh, while I was awake, they, were, they thought that I might have had a minor ACL uh, grade tear. It was just a little bit of movement. He's like, ah, it's still intact. So it just uh, somehow when I had torn it and wired up, it just... Ended up being okay. Classic well-born, cheating on the tests. Yeah. Uh, Outsmarting the tests. No, it's just, I think um, with playing football, and I think the more and more that we get into these high-level sports, um, and unfortunately, the majority of models are built off of these high-level athletes. And you know, because so, that's who people want to work with, that's who they want to study. The problem comes down to is uh, the best athletes in the world are probably the best athletes in the world for a number of reasons that are intrinsic and just happen on, through environment and just born. Uh, so, so like it's very hard to you know come in and like, hey, we're going to study all of these NFL players and we're going to try to do something out for the population, and they don't realize that not only are these guys genetically, mentally, physically, chemically very different than most people. Um, I, I remember the first time I got some of my blood work done, the doctor's like, uh, you know that your DHT level is like four times higher than the average person. And uh, he's like, you know what, um, that results is in hair loss and an enlarged prostate. And I'm like, well, I got a full head of hair and your prostate numbers are like, your PSA numbers were like, you know, so low. They were, you know, uh, like zero. And uh, the doctor was like, uh, looking at my blood work, he's like, dude, this is just a genetic abnormality, which results in you being able to get angry, like on tap. And he goes, it's just, that's, you know, the conversion of testosterone is kind of what we know in terms of like uh, that anger piece. And he's like, it's just when we look at a lot of high, you know, guys that play in the NFL and this, just chemically, there's some certain things that are just a little bit different. Like, uh, you know, some guys are blood sugars are a little higher. Other, you know, other guys, uh, you know, free testosterone is more their, um, uh, you know, uh, 
Oh, I'm totally blanking on the other stuff, but like just some other chemical things. And Tom Inkledon out at Cosenta, human performance specialist, you know, Tom's tested all these guys and uh, just said, you know, for the most part, you can look and say, you know, there's something just a little bit tweak on the difference. Same thing with Dr. Bueller working with athletes. He's like, you know, the guy, the higher level of the athlete, the faster they respond. And, the, and he goes in, their response is different than most people. So I think you get to this point where you get to the top of the funnel and, um, there's other reasons. And so unfortunately, when we look at training programs and we look at, you know, who people want to study, they all want to work with the LeBron James and the Tom Brady's and these guys. And then they want to extrapolate something out. It's kind of like Tom Brady being like, well, this is what I did to play 18 years in the NFL. And, you know, this is what everybody needs to do. And it just so happens right. that like he's the one in a million for a very good reason. So I know with our training programs and the people we work with, I'm not necessarily interested in like the high level, you know, peak performer guys. I'm interested in more of the uh, you know, the genetic m- trash. <laughs> I was going to say the middle of the bell curve, because if, if you can drive adaptation in that position, then I think that validates, you know, I mean, it's kind of like uh, I was laughing, thinking of um, uh, Braden Smith, you know, a uh, kid we, you know, one of our coaches worked with. I mean, he benched like 565 pounds in college. And so he goes in, he's second round draft pick and they're talking about this guy. And I'm like, dude, the guy benched 500 plus in high school. Like, I mean, like that, like yeah, he, a, yeah. I mean, there's a reason he's four years. I'm just amazed he went in the second round. It's almost as if like, if I could have worked with him for a year, I could have got him into the first round, just being able to teach him. Cause when I watched his film and they were kind of going through grading him, he was making some, like some small errors that I know the reason he didn't go in the first. And so like just watching that, I kind of was funny. I was like, man, if I could have, uh, basically if I could have had that Kim come work or go with work with me or Turley for like a few months, uh, like and he'll learn all these things, but like that, like, like that level of, um, you know, like those guys are super gifted. So I, I just wonder when you look at your studies and you start working with, you know, kind of high level guys, how does like the scans and a lot of these things kind of, you know, like what's the, I guess you could say like, what's the, I guess, what's the check for it? What's like the, you know, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So a lot of our studies, we do it on collegiate or recreational athletes. Like a lot of my studies, we haven't done it on a really high level, like NFL, NBA type guys. But one of the big things you have to do, especially for brain imaging work, is I want to take someone who's torn their ACL. I got to find someone who is as close to you as possible. So like for our study, we had a girl on the the Ohio State soccer team, she's in the study. We got her sister who was also on the team, say, play the same position. Because all of those little experiences will drastically change how you'll activate. So, for instance, if Tex is a lacrosse player, his um, you can even tell the difference between which is your hand. So, like the low hand, you'll have a, a different brain representation of each hand versus someone else who is maybe not an upper extremity athlete. So, you really have to have very tight, tight controls because almost anything will change how your brain will activate. So, that, that's one of the big key things. I do want to touch on a couple. You sent some studies my way, and I read through yeah, them, yeah. and I pulled some terms that I'd love to get into to share with our, our audience. The first is neuromechanical responsiveness. And you had a beautiful definition in there that sums up a lot of the, the practice and training that we aim to do with our movements. So I'd love to get into neuromechanical sure. responsiveness. So that was a, basically this paper I wrote with uh, Gary Wilkerson at University of Tennessee and he's been working on this for a really long time. And it's sort of a culmination of uh, what John sort of opened up the podcast about. Is what is this connection between maybe concussion, injuries, how you move, damage to the brain, sort of all this stuff. 
neuromechanical responsiveness is it can be very, very simple and we can make it complex. So I know that paper, it's kind of, I, re, I was looking at it this morning and it's not the easiest uh, uh, definition, it's not the best in there. And essentially basically just means your ability to respond to a stimulus. So there's this idea in psychology where they call it perception, action, coupling. So you perceive something that could be proprioception, it could be vision, and then you have an action that you respond with. And the neuromechanical responsiveness sort of layers your baseline states on it. So it incorporates visual processing speed like we talked about before. If that's a little low, you may get an ACL injury your baseline muscle stiffness, your strength, postural control. So it incorporates a lot of aspects. And we've been trying to develop ways to assess this. So one big problem right now is, so for instance, that impact test you guys are familiar with. So for your audience, if you don't know, basically it's a computer test and assesses your sort of short-term memory, visual processing, speed reaction time. It's a baseline test for concussion. So that's a cognitive primary test. And then we'll do different sports tests. So like Dr. Tim Hewitt, he'll have you like land from a box and he'll look for your knees to collapse in. And we know valgus is bad. We look for asymmetries. And what's been interesting over the last few years, if you layer on a, la a layer of cognitive difficulty or visual difficulty, what I mean by that is if I have you run and cut, you'll have a movement profile. And then I, then I just put a defender there and you have to run and cut at that defender your movement profile will degrade a little bit. So you have a little more knee valgus, you'll hit the plate a little harder, you have you move with a little bit more injury risk. And then if I have you remember something, so remember the play or where this player is or whatever sort of game situation, that degrades it even further. So we're trying to make these clinical tests to assess this integration of neuromechanical responsiveness, which basically means we're combining your neural processing or cognitive control from these concussion tests and how you move and your motor performance. So I know one of your questions was, if you don't have a brain scanner, so I talked before identifying these people that really rely, that rely on this visual motor strategy. And so one problem is, so every brain scan costs like 500 bucks, and, and if you wanna have your own brain scan, it's like $3 million, very expensive. So we don't have that. So we've spent a lot of time trying, what can I do as a strength coach or an athletic trainer in the field? Can I identify these people who may have a degrade in neuromechanical responsiveness? or depend on maybe too much vision for movement. And you guys, I notice you guys don't have mirrors on your squat racks. I wanna talk about that in a second. But um, so the one thing you can do is if you just stand on one foot and then you jump as high as you can, you jump three times and you tell the athlete, try to land in the footprint. So jump as high as you can on one leg and try to land in the same footprint. How much they, ex they excursion off that, so how ability to stay in that footprint, the distance that they travel is very well correlated to how much lingual gyrus activity they had in the study I talked about before. So your reliance on vision, you can assess that pretty quick with this quick clinical test. You have them jump three times, eyes open, jump three times, eyes closed. The difference between eyes open and eyes closed. So most people have a little bit more um, excursion from trying to stay in the same footprint with their eyes. They close their eyes because they don't have as much balance, if that makes sense. And then so that difference is related to how much brain change they had after the injury and how much they rely on vision to move. That makes sense. And what I want to ask, you guys don't, do you have mirrors anywhere in the? In the uh, we do room? have mirrors, but they're not here. So back in the day, we got these uh, big stand-up mirrors. 
Yeah, yeah. And we would end, we would kind of move them around and put them in front of different things when we uh, specifically if we were working with somebody like for example. Um, Someone drop in, come hang out. Yeah. Or if you knew you're feeling like shit one day and you're like, what the fuck's going on? That yeah. doesn't feel right type of day. So might or, use that. Or like, hey, somebody's getting underneath the bar and they're kind of constantly going to one side and it kind of looks yeah. funky. And you're like, how does that feel? And they're like, oh, it feels normal. And then you show them and you're like, uh, I want to show you what normal is. So you get them in the exact position and they're like, wow, that feels really awkward. I'm like, well, that's the right position. So I think sometimes um, certain athletes uh, have a higher proprioceptive like intrinsic i guess you could say um what what do we uh what would be the word for that like um body awareness yeah just body awareness like a higher intelligence like a you know can can feel things uh some people need like a visual like idea like i need to see it to know what it feels like so i can replicate it and so we had mirrors um and we would kind of move them around at certain points we'd take them away and keep them and uh, I thought it was extremely beneficial, especially for like depth. Like I think I'm hitting good depth and we're like, man, let me, let me show you what that depth is or what does this look like? So I think we used them as a tool, but I didn't want them there. And the other thing that drove me crazy is uh, a lot of times with mirrors, um, you know, and I know the NSCA, NSCM have these like, uh, you know, it has to be 24 inches off of the ground. For the mirror, I want to be able to see the feet because uh, I'm a huge believer like um, – the other observation I made is that a lot of guys that tear ACLs, it comes after some form of foot injury, whether it be like a foot injury, ankle sprain, toe. Um, I know, uh, you know, guys like if you had a Liz Frank or you had something more dramatic, it always ended up either resulting in like, you know, something bigger. So uh, I like to be able to see the feet and I want them to be able to see like if they have navicular drop, what does it look like? How do they keep a neutral foot? If they're putting their big toe down, how does it all look? So I think that piece was important to us. So that's why we had movable mirrors. But you don't use it every single session, right? No. You don't use it if you need it. So you guys are already way ahead because I remember even at the at the Bengals or in, when I was at college strength coach, we had mirrors everywhere. And every single session, even at Ohio State, the strength coach is there. They would let them look at their movement every single time. So you're basically just reinforcing this visual motor strategy to move. And then you take it away when you go on to the field. And one thing we I've seen or um, in some of the brain scan data is that if you want someone to learn to correct something very quick, so you're like, I need you to move better now, then visual feedback with a mirror, very, very, very good. Because people will, like you just said, John, they'll see it, they understand it, they adapt their movement. But what happens is the way the brain activation pattern goes is you will learn to use that as a crutch. So you'll learn to depend on it. And if you can transition to auditory feedback as fast as you can, then you'll have much, much better motor retention. And you'll develop this brain activation pattern that makes it so you don't have to have that feedback. And we have a study going on right now using um, some augmented reality. So um, taking a lot of the data we've seen from just looking at people post-injury, trying to design new therapies or how we train people. And so what it seems like to be the maybe one of the most important things for learning how to move is to learn how to do the squat, whatever you're interested, landing, cutting, doesn't matter, and learn how to do it what's called implicitly. So the classic example of implicit learning is like tell, if you could tell me how to ride a bike. So you tell me how to ride a bike, well, you like, I kind of sit on it, and I kind of track one side or the other. It's hard to describe. So you just learn by doing it. And so we learn almost everything. We learn how to move by doing so for instance a little you guys some of you guys have uh kids i'm pretty sure tex has no kids so i've gathered from the podcast maybe bachelor not that we know of 
Well, we think he's like a mule. He can't reproduce. No, don't say that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, no, uh, um, if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me say that kids learn by watching. They are uh, uh, like, and, and it's it's pretty interesting. I remember in, uh, God, I can't remember when I read the study. And if somebody hears me, please don't email me asking for it because I can't find it. But it was basically the, this observational deal where they observed children that had been raised by their grandparents, paternal, paternal grandparents, and they watched their gait. And the one kid kind of had a shuffle and it turned out that the grandfather had a cane and the kid kind of had this shuffle piece. And to the point where, uh, you know, you can see the kids develop movement patterns by watching their parents. So a big thing, and I used to talk about this at the gym and especially in our training is like learn to move well because the life that you're saving isn't your own. You don't want your kids to be poor movers. Uh, and just some really interesting observation stuff. I mean, when you go out and you watch, um, like when my kids go out and play with their friends and my wife's super athletic and she moves really well and like, uh, she's, you know, has good posture and like, there's just a lot of things that like are important, like always put the toes forward. Um, I want the kids to observe people moving well. And then when we're around and we go hang out with other parents or whatever, and I was like watching, uh, a uh, little kid recently at our swim deal, uh, kid moves very, in, like very strangely kind of shuffles his feet, like kind of like walks with kind of a weird gait. And I kind of, I, I like was kind of confused. I'm like, why does that little kid look like this? And like his ankles are kind of bowing in a uh, big thing for my girls. And even my boy, I, um, I don't let them wear shoes. Um, they don't wear, I mean, at like maybe outside now that we're in Texas, it's warm cause there's fire ants or whatnot. But for the first four years of my girls uh, deal, they never wore shoes. Uh, no shoes in the house. Like you don't play with your shoes on, you go outside and just being able to like learn to display the toes and how to move, uh, to me was, was huge. But, um, the, even to the point where my little girls, when they were two and I took them to gymnastics, we would always go early and watch the older girls, uh, train. And they'd always be like, why are we here? And I'm like, I want to watch you. I, I want you to see how these girls are moving. I want you to watch them. I want you to be inspired by the big girls. And it's just, just seeing good movement. I mean, unfortunately, if, uh, if you're a parent or if you're raising your kid and you're not necessarily, uh, athletic or moving or have people around that are athletic, the kid's just going to learn by what they're seeing. And unfortunately it's going to put them in a hole. No, you're hundred percent. I mean, you have a lot of good observations. You're like, Dude, uh, that's the reason. Oh, Here we go. Uh, uh, I, I, um, I, I'll go back and say, you know, as a Berkeley grad, uh, but but part of the reason and, and really the foundation for a lot of what you hear at Power Athlete comes off of just me working with some really phenomenal coaches, but also just seeing observation and asking questions and being like, why is this the case? And just, you know, yeah. I mean, for uh, offensive linemen. You know, I know coaches probably didn't like it very much, but uh, even the strength coaches. But for me, I'm always interested in patterns and I see patterns in a lot of things. And if I see a pattern that's repeating, I want to know why that kind of fits. And then also, I'm, um, you know, I mean, here, you know, we're performance horse. You know, I'm focused on how I ramp up human performance to the highest level, uh, you know, and we're not satisfied until we can crack the code. And unfortunately, as I go farther along, I realize that the more basic we get in terms of like, let me teach you primal movements. Let me teach you just how to basically move, you know, within the X, Y, and Z axis. And now once you master it, let's move in space. Let's move in, you know, three different planes of motion and let's continue to push. And, you know, and then once you master it, let's challenge this stuff using external resistance, whether it be barbells movements. And then as you continue to like master and challenge, master and challenge, you continue to pr progress, you know, and it's just, it fits within the training template. And, uh, it, it, it's a, 
it's a template that uh, I believe has existed since the beginning of time. And unfortunately, people, uh, we don't hear it talked about enough. And then when we do hear people talk about it, it's usually people that have been listening to us. Or, or <laughs> what I enjoy is uh, meeting guys like you, Dusty, where you observe similar things in the performance field, whether it's football or different sports. And then you found an interest and went just a different way. We made a similar observation or the same observation, but hell, man, there's one that lit your fire and inspire you to to go balls deep on a subject. You know, yeah. ours, different posture and position, observations from the field, and then yours are from kind of returning to the field. So it's it's amazing to see a lot of the different things that... Well, he's... He is- I think we're we're really in this idea of uh, hardware versus software. I mean, we're uh, at least I know here in Power Athlete, we really focus on like you know the movement piece in terms of like the hardware. When I talk about what we do here, it's like a technology, and we've been Luke will geek on this, but like the software piece, uh, you know, what you're talking about really is like the processors. You know, like what is the, you know, what's the environment look like? Like how do you mate the the software to the hardware? And I think uh, if you beat your head, and I actually Dr. Anson and I were talking joking about this yesterday. Um, as he was looking at my shoulder, he's like, you know, what's the outcome? I'm like, Hey man, I just want to be better than I am today. So let's figure that. I was like, I'd never thought that I'd play 10 years in the NFL and come out scot-free. I didn't think that beating my head into another dude for three hours every Sunday and, you know, extra during, uh, during the week was going to result, uh, you know, result in, you know, increased brain activity, you know? And, right, uh, right. but I think if you can minimize those things, I think like, um, you know, ketogenic diets, uh, you know, being able to make sure your supplementation's on point. You know, I, I think a big one too, and I made this observation was that the guys who tended to take the most amount of painkillers tend to have the most amount of neurological problems coming out of the NFL. And for me, I never really took a, you know, took painkillers, um, just cause I'd never thought the pain bothered me the same way. So I, I just think, um, if we can have more access in terms of like, how do you, uh, like if you can look at the processor and say, all right, we know that, Hey, if, if you have this injury in the scan, like now you're set up for more injuries in this way, uh, is that something that you can, can you start to like mitigate and reduce those injuries? Or is it something where you're like, man, it's, it's going to happen, but there has to be a way to necessarily fix this and take the information and make it useful. Yeah. One thing, uh, to go back to the how like the kid example how you learn and then we can go back to predicting injury risk and stuff and one thing i do i do empathize with what you said earlier about uh changing people so i i give a lot of talks these last few years as people are getting interested in the neural pieces but uh, until i show the data it can be hard to change a lot of atcs or pts or strength guys people get pretty set so i really empathize with what you guys are trying to do but what I was saying before, like you mentioned, John, your kids just learn by watching. And if you ask them, well, how do you walk? They're not going to say, well, I dorsiflex my foot and then I hip flexion and then I go to knee extension. But then in therapy or even in your strength conditioning practice, um, at least for me, you give your feedback is all that. Keep your knees over your toes, bend more, squat or um, dorsiflex more. Even in therapy, it's always have good knee extension or whatever. We give all this feedback that we call explicit feedback. But that's not how we learn to move at all. And we just finished a study. It should be coming out soon where we had people do the same knee movements. And I either told them, contract your quad or use your foot and try to hit this target in the air. And they moved the exact same. The biomechanics are the same. The muscle activation is the same. The brain activation profile is very different. It's because when you give someone this cue on exactly how to do the movement, your brain activates in such a way where you need that cue still. So this goes back to the visual feedback. I've been working with this group in Cincinnati. This is a massive NIH project. 
where we're doing brain imaging after um, as part of an ACL prevention program. And then they're getting, they're wearing these augmented reality glasses. So have you guys ever seen a uh, Google uh, Google glasses or whatever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's augmented reality. And I put these sensors on you. So you guys probably have seen like the motion capture stuff. Sure. You put markers on people and stuff. And that's just basically tells the computer where you are in space and how you're moving. And you wear these glasses. And basically what you would see is a square. And then you just tell the athlete squat, run, cut, whatever it is, and keep that a perfect square. Then the square deforms. So if you go into valgus, your knees collapse in, the square bows in like a triangle, like two triangles. And then if you load one side more than the other, then the square deforms and it shifts. But you never tell the athlete, hey, those are what those errors mean. You just tell them, keep that square perfect. And they naturally, implicitly, just like how your kid learns to move, they learn to run, cut, do whatever you want with perfect biomechanics. And then they can't tell you how they're moving. I love it. Send it over. We want it. Um, and if you guys want to set. Yeah, dude, uh, send that. What we're hoping to do is uh, use IMUs, which are like little portable sensors that don't need the big expensive lab cameras. So the hope is that you could get the price down enough where you just put on a few sensors and you wear this and then you squat or do whatever you want and you just never tell the athlete. Now, if you don't have this equipment, so a lot of people listen, you're like, well, I don't have a $5 million NIH grant. How do I do this? This is kind of sad almost. A way to reproduce it is you simply tell the kid that's good movement or that's bad movement. Mm -hmm. Now, this can be tough. I was thinking you could use, you could just fucking pick colors, Uh, right, that represent orange, 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 orange. Ah, there you go. You know, and it's fucking orange has to do with your shift and right. So uh, this is kind of a funny one, but um, we used to watch a ton of film in the NFL. Like after practice, we go and watch the uh, practice film. And I remember taking notes on things that I didn't like that I was doing. And then I would go out and I would, uh, you know, try to do the things. And I remember getting to the point where I could you know, go out and film. And if I got to the point where I liked what I saw on film, I knew at least I was on the right kind of page. So the other one too, and I was thinking back on this with kids is, um, I also made an interesting or, okay. So, uh, years ago when I found out I was uh, having twins, I, um, had the opportunity to hang out with Dr. Romanoff who, uh, developed the pose stuff. And even though we're not pose guys, I love Dr. Romanoff and a lot of what he talks about. But, uh, I asked him, I said, is there any fatherly advice that you can give me, uh, having kids? And he said, um, put the baby on floor, just put it on the floor and walk away. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, don't be one of these, uh, he's like different Americans want to carry their children everywhere, put the baby on the floor and make them move. And, uh, as so what do we do? We put the kids on the floor and, um, you know, didn't carry them everywhere. And, uh, sure enough, they rolled over and they started moving and they crawled and that was a huge thing. And then I remember, uh, parents when we would take our kids and they would start moving like, Oh, they can run, they can move. And I remember other parents being like, Oh, our kids don't really walk that well on this. And I'd be like, well, what did you do? Oh, well we had them in a, a jumper in the, uh, you know, in, in the, the doorway, or we had them in an extra saucer, or they kind of put them in all these different things that artificially supported them. Case in point, I was at the airport the other day and there was a dude that had this, um, it almost looked, it was like a, um, like a harness for the kid. And the dad kind of had these straps, uh, that kind of attached under the arm and he was kind of walking and I asked him, I'm like, uh, what's going on? He's like, Oh, nothing. She took her first step yesterday. So I'm helping her. And he was walking around the airport in this kind of strap. And I have a picture of it. Cause I was like, can I get a picture? Nobody's going to fucking believe this. And as I, and I was kind of like, they, they called my plane, but I wanted to tell the dude, I'm like, you are doing more damage to your child's oh. movement pattern than you could ever fucking know. And in 18 years, you're going to, I mean, in two years, but this, this piece of, uh, 
of like, oh, you know, there's all this jiggy stuff. And I just remember Romanoff being like, don't pick the baby up, put baby on floor and get it to move. And the idea that when I went back and looked at the developmental process, the idea of like cross pattern crawling, you know, it develops the brain in such a way. So then, and then when you watch them, babies like when, when you, it's kind of interesting how they stand up. They, you know, they kind of scoot their butts up and they get into a seated position. And when they can sit up straight, they have the, the trunk stability. And then you watch them push up you know, get into this, you know, squat position and they stand up and they take their first steps. And then watching this, you realize like, holy shit, if I took away the crawling aspect and didn't allow them to develop that piece, they would have never developed the kind of the coordination in the trunk and all these other pieces. So, um, as we go back, I sometimes wonder whenever I, I like see these kids and either they have like severe, you know, collapsing of the ankles or they don't, or they don't move well and they're two and three years old. I always ask the parent, I'm like, Oh, did you put them in an extra saucer? And, uh, invariably it's always the, the door jumper thing. Do you know why? Cause I can put the kid there. I don't have to chase him around. If I put the baby on the floor, I got to kind of move and do all this. So we used to set a baby gates around our living room and then just kind of put the kids in there and let them kind of, you know, crawl around and do whatever. So we didn't have to chase them into rooms. But, um, and as I was saying, the more advanced we get and the more jiggy we get and the more cool shit that we can buy on Amazon, uh, unfortunately, a lot of that shit is negatively affecting us in such a way that, um, I think it's hurting the movement piece. But, um, you know, the other one too, and we, we got really into this, the idea of developing the inner ear for balance so that kids don't swing and climb and run and do all these kind of movements. So it, their, the ear isn't developing. So their sense of coordination, their ability to judge distance isn't the same so and reading all this stuff what do we do we basically sold everything packed up and moved to austin texas and now we live on a deal and what do my kids do after school they go outside and they just go you just throw them out in the field so dig a hole kid no you know what they do it up uh they run they jump they climb trees they do everything and and it's it's yeah i mean it's pick picking berries yesterday yeah they yeah they uh they came in today and they had a whole bunch of blueberries and they're like these aren't as good as the blueberries we get or the the uh the raspberries as we get at the store yeah there's like a special texas blackberry and so you got a bunch on boatload on your land i don't know if you know this oh yeah no they're down at the the, uh, yeah the kids are picking them they're over by the chicken coop they're down by the by the dam but um i think uh you know the other one that we ran into is um like rotation, for example, a lot of athletes and a lot of people today are struggling with, with like uh, rotation and movements. And, you know, we've seen this not only with the schools, but also the military stuff we're doing. And I remember, uh, as I was sitting with pretty high level dude, he's like, you know, the problem is he's like, none of these kids grew up chopping any wood or swinging a hammer. He's like, not a single one of them knows how to rotate or necessarily how to generate force in rotation. And he's like, shit, if I could just get him a whole bunch of hammers and get these kids to chop wood before they get here, we probably have less injuries. And so as we go back, the idea of like a more basic kind of approach and template and movement structure is, uh, is what like... Yeah, all, but then, then even that swings to the extreme and then you get into these, this mace shit where oh. people are just like balls deep in maces, which, listen, we did some of that shit uh, with, with uh, one yeah, of those Wolf guys. Brigade. And, uh, and like, listen, and it's fine, you know what I mean? But it's, what do people do? They go extreme, and it's like, I don't even touch a fucking barbell because I need rotary functional movement pattern before well, you or, can squat or Or some you shit. can go out and dig some fucking fence posts. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a boss. Yeah, and, uh, and start working on, you know, accelerating a hammer and doing a lot so of stuff. So hang on, John. I just want to explain real quick to Tex what we're talking about because, oh as God. everybody knows... Tex uh, is the blister. A.K.A. the blister. He shows up once all the work is done. Uh, Tex, how many fence posts you've dug, fence post holes have you dug here? I'm a left brain guy. 
I'm oh. creative. Hence, <laughs> hence when uh, I you're a creative. What uh, what level of creativity have I ever seen you do? Oh my God, uh, we don't have time to explain because oh, this is Jesus. a limited podcast. Uh, it, uh, Dusty, I want to get into our. <laughs> Did you see how he transitioned? Uh, comp- <laughs> compensatory motor strategies, and I I, yeah, yeah. I sat on this for a while because, and and John even mentioned it right. These elite level athletes, they come up with the best way that they can move. One of my greatest learning athletes experiences was a college athlete who ran a four or five, basically, but he moved and walked kind of duck footed heel over heel. And then now he's starting in the NFL as a cornerback. So I just didn't understand watching him move and then how it translated to, you know, his amazing performance on the field. But then also the other side of the coin, kind of the genetic trash can and compensatory to move so poorly and then once we get them to at least get into good postures and positions the challenging that it takes it feels weird to them or doesn't feel right so i'd love to explore both sides of the coin if we have time Uh, i have time it's really up to you guys the um so i just want to button up the last thing we were talking about um then we'll jump into the compensatory thing text is a lot of times strength coaches, I know myself as a problem in ATC, PT, doesn't matter what you are, you want to give a ton of feedback and you want to, you want your patients to move perfectly every time. You never want to be in a bad position. And really what we found in a lot of the brain data and like this implicit learning I talked about with augmented reality, really what you just need, you need to almost do less. You need to let them figure out how to move and you just give as you want to give them as little feedback as possible. This can be very hard because you want to feel like you're earning your money. You know, if your strength coach are paying you, you know, they're paying you not enough, you know, you're making barely enough to live on somewhere, but you feel like you need to earn it. So you need to give them feedback. And really what we're seeing is you got to give them probably less is more. Well, do you, do you think there's any benefit to um, uh, years ago, we used to do what we called chaos training where we would, uh, you know, implement like different bars or different movements or set up different things to, to put us to literally make sure that we're getting into a bad position yeah, yeah. and then having to fight to maintain position. So I, I, I found that if, uh, if everything was perfect all the time and I, I was put myself in the most advantageous position, all I had to do is do X, Y, and Z, opposed from like now I want to create some chaos theory where now I'm going to force myself into a bad position and now I have to, you know, know how to correct because – for a lot of times, uh, you know, in the NFL, like even though I know what I want to do, um, a lot of times it's not going to be perfect. I'm going to be in a bad position. So now I have to figure out how to get back into or necessarily be able to be successful in a bad place. Yeah. So what we see is motor learning wise and then the neuroplasticity associated with it. If you want someone to get really good at doing the squat, well, you have them do the squat over and over and you do three sets of 10 or whatever, you do it all in a row. Some of the chaos components has to do with this, what we scientific community will call random distributed practice. So if you then if you might want to do different bars, different exercises, maybe you do a squat, leg press, whatever, you change the bar or whatever. What essentially what we're seeing happen is if you would do the squat three sets of 10, that after that first time you do it, every other time you just have to generate that last phase of the motor program. So you do squat once, the first time you do it, you got to activate your frontal cortex. You got to think, okay, I'm in a good position. Where am I good? Then it goes to pre-motor. So that's your motor planning and then motor cortex. And you execute it, do the movement. And if you do three sets of 10, you basically just keep doing the motor cortex one over and over. You don't do all that other processing. But say you do the squat, then you do another. If you change just anything, 
change your feet positions. It, it takes very little to alter this. Then you big weights off. Restart the system. Yeah, we used to take like uh, put like a like you know a bunch of five or ten pound plates and just pull one plate off on one side. So all of a sudden you yeah, feel a dip, and then you change your foot position or you stagger, exactly. uh, you know, and you you get into like different positions with that. The fun stuff. Yeah, and so yeah, and it was the idea of like you know can I continue to you know the idea of um you know and this goes back to our whole manual resistance deal where we figured out that if i can fatigue neuromuscular pathways and then force you to do something dynamic which allows you to rewire and create new neuromuscular pathways i can effectively drive strength and adaptation and make people better and uh that idea of chaos theory was another way of doing that yeah does has got a lot on eccentrics which i also want to get into oh i i I am uh i'm i'm so geeked out on the idea of um eccentrics merely for the fact that when we uh you know cal deets a buddy of ours made a point he said you know in terms of tissue remodeling uh you know it takes what like i think is it ten thousand pounds per square inch to remodel tissue is what Zanis told us Zanis that was for like uh um, well you know therapies the massage and stuff like that when you get into a lot of these guys that are doing mobility now the idea of like oh we're going to tissue remodel by you know putting a 300 pound weight on you and it's I think it's a 10,000 pounds per square inch to remodel tissue and then I remember talking to Cal Dietz and he's like you know heavy eccentrics is really one of the only ways we've we've ever seen tissue remodel in a positive way and, uh, you know, I mean, but we, shit, we used to do that. I mean, back in the day at the end of every bench, we used to do a heavy single, you know, eccentric load. We used to do, you know, lockouts and, and different stuff. The problem is, is finding a way that's ethical and also safe so that people don't fuck yeah. themselves up. So I can connect, I'll connect the eccentric piece to your compensation question some, Tex. So what we've seen of as a big predictor for injury, just to, for most, most of my studies have been on ACL injuries. So earlier I talked about cerebellum and your ability so you can't consciously turn it on like if you think i want to consciously move that's mostly your cortex but the cerebellum lets you do an automatic control and essentially what it's doing it's looking it does what's called sensory prediction so it's looking it's trying to predict where you're going to be in space every second and so when your knee starts to collapse in for that acl injury event your cerebellum will kick in and go oh i'm approaching this position i want to overload the ligament let's correct it or it fails to do that and you don't have the correction and you have the, the injury, the ligament damage. And so what we see after the injury, cerebellum goes down, this automatic control capability goes down and you rely more on your cortex. And so you basically are compensating with this cognitive control, having to think about where you are and you have less automatic control. And we just had a, a paper about this for eccentric training. So a friend of mine um, named Lindsay Lepley at UConn and um, She's done, she's made her whole career looking at, can I use eccentric training after injury to get injury responses? So she's even doing, we're doing a study right now together. You guys probably heard of cross exercise, right? Where if you exercise my right, my, or my left, my right gets stronger, right? Because of neurological effect. So what she's showing is that if you do eccentric cross exercise, the effect's even bigger. And so we're doing some brain imaging studies right now to figure out, well, what is going on in the nervous system that makes eccentric exercise special. And one of our first studies, we took people after they blew out their knee and we see this too much cortex, not enough cerebellum. If you do an eccentric, even a short training intervention, you start to see this start to reverse. So there's a systemic, cerebellum. so you're saying right. there's a systemic effect for just basically doing some form of eccentrics. Like if I tore my ACL and I did an upper body eccentrics, like a heavy bench eccentric, there's a systemic effect. So the studies we're doing is just cross exercise. So it's like left leg, right leg, right arm, left arm. The 
effects are much lower if you're going cross body because you just don't have as much interhemisphere communication. So you have a ton of wiring going left leg to right leg because you got to work in sync. Your like right arm to left leg is nowhere near as wired as heavily. There um, is a couple studies that look at spinal cord and more systemic nervous system responses. You do get some changes that would indicate you should have a systemic response. It's just much, much lower. So left leg to right leg, very high. Left arm to right arm, very high. But arm to leg is going to be much more degraded. But what's interesting, not only, so she's really interested in, if you guys want to dive deep into the eccentrics, she's been doing this for like a decade. She did her PhD work on it. She's still doing it. She's at a UConn. She's a very good friend of mine. She, she's, this is all, she does biopsies. She does mouse models. She does humans. She does healthy. She does ACL. All eccentric all the time. And I just do this neural parts. That's really what I'm interested in. But she's finding that it is very beneficial for muscle adaptations, the tissue remodeling. What you're actually seeing is those, these eccentric exercises are having this neural effect, and they're improving your automatic corrections, which sort of makes sense because it's that eccentric control which allows you to not get injured. Because if you can absorb the forces, and mostly your cerebellum, what we found was very interesting, is that will activate a lot more in the eccentric phase. So we find that to be extremely important. So not only do you get these structural benefits like you were talking about, John, but you also get a really big neural boost. So like, this is just one of, we can go into the clinical trial we're doing on the ACL. This is uh, the military's funding this because they were very interested in it. But uh, but before we go on, let's just preface yeah. this for our listeners yeah, yeah. that you should not Sorry. involve yourself in heavy eccentric type movements until you can develop stability with uh, an isometric yeah. contraction. You know, stability is found in isometric contraction. For example, if I wanted to do heavy eccentrics on a squat, I should at least be able to do a walkout with said weight and be able to maintain perfect position and posture for at least 10 seconds. If you look like you're doing like the in-place lumbata, you know, because <laughs> you can't develop the trunk strength, then please do not start loading up the weight and just trying to fucking die bottom to the well, bottom. And that's also if you're doing forced eccentrics with a barbell on your own, there also is, yeah. you know, we have our manual resistance. Yeah. The buddy system. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, it's just when, unfortunately, when people think about heavy eccentrics, they're not thinking of like our manual resistance protocols. They're thinking like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I squat 500, I'm going to put 700 pounds in the bar oh, and yeah, fucking ride it to the bottom. And the problem is, is uh, if like, you know, the reason that guys, and, and we, we ran in this in college, we, uh, at the end of our heavy bench cycles, we used to always do lockouts. And I remember doing a bunch of heavy lockouts. And then once you were able to maintain and you got used to the weight after a couple of weeks of lockouts, then we would go to essentially like a, like a heavy negative. And I remember one of the guys jumping in with us who hadn't done the lockouts ends up going to do the negative, And what did he do? Blew his pack. And I just remember thinking like, there's something, you know, I mean, like, I didn't know the science at the time. I just knew that, like, when all of a sudden I could maintain stability with the weight in an isometric contraction, now all of a sudden I was ready because he wasn't able to. I mean, it's just, I, I just think that there's a training hierarchy, and by far the one is, like, there's some really fucking cool shit on the fringe that'll drive adaptation. Uh, the problem is, is getting there and safely coming back is going to be predicated on, like, preparation and what you know and where you are in your training and just being intelligent. What's crazy is even for that research study we did in the ACL guys, we weren't even doing that heavy a load. Like it was, I think we just did like 10, 20 pounds. We were just focused on the eccentric portion. And normally in therapy, you do a ton of concentric work or you might do concentric and eccentric. And, but we don't really think a lot about the just training eccentrically as soon as you can. 
And then even just training the other side eccentrically has this a similar overall boost. So I know you're saying you're talking more about the really heavy stuff, but this ad this neural adaptation you can get with very low loads. You know, it's almost kind of like uh like the katsu training or the buffalo you don't even need a heavy load and you can get no. this big structural muscular adaptation. I, I just remember uh, uh, Dr. Katsu saying that when he broke his leg and kind of first theorized the idea of the blood flow restricted deal, uh, he was just doing it on the one leg. And then he got to the point where I think he started getting nervous. Maybe there was some clotting or something. He didn't necessarily give me uh, what it was. So he went to the other leg and started doing it a ton on the other leg mm-hmm. and saw this kind of crossover effect. And, uh, like his story on how, like he came up with it was fucking like meditation. No, it was crazy. He, he was a skier and he broke his leg and, uh, he was the only one that could drive the bus cause he was the only one that could work the clutch. <laughs> so what he did is he, ca- he like, um, went to some, like there's some like voodoo Japanese people where like they don't cast it. Some guy goes in and like somehow manipulates the bone manipulated the bone back in place kind of like stabilized him and then what he did is he thought that if he could just like uh um like numb the leg so what he did is he he occluded the top of the leg and he started like kind of occluding it and doing this and trying to get like a pumping effect and like he ended up driving the bus getting everybody home and whatever and he kept doing it and he said within three weeks he went back and got an x-ray and the bone had like started to heal fat like they were like this bone's almost healed and so that was kind of got him on this, you know, you know, when I, and then when I met him, he was in his seventies and the dude, like, I mean, I'm sure he colored his hair, but like the dude was jacked. Like he took his coat off and I was like, fuck man, this dude's super fit. And he was talking about like the things that he had done in the weight room and the training and what he was doing for his stuff was like, he had been doing the katsu for like 50 years in different versions. And, uh, uh, he talked about like capillary density and the density of the artery walls and like, just, it was pretty pretty fascinating and then i came to the realization that uh the amount of information that he had he was kind of fucking black boxing like he was he wasn't necessarily sharing with people and he was using it for like the japanese speed skaters and their olympic teams and so i was kind of prying him on some shit and uh sorry and um but there's it's pretty interesting man there's there's so much we don't know and uh like you know like and and i'm sure you when you see this you're like fuck man i would have never thought that was the case just basically focusing on eccentric movements with even a light load like the idea that i'm going to drop the deal and then have somebody pick the back up and i'm just going to use that eccentric portion ends up driving adaptation yeah and it may drive the application to correct this fundamental way you correct motor errors like it just makes you neurologically more efficient just practicing that eccentric lowering like I, i didn't expect to see the effect to be that robust to be this large because she was the Lindsay at Lepe Yukon was trying to convince me she's like I really think there's something neurologically there and I'm like whatever you're just moving down I'm like fuck and who cares are we allowed to curse was that yeah right? yeah no fuck whatever yeah you want. You can, whatever the fuck you want to do Ear so um, <laughs> I didn't really think about it and then I tried it and I was like wow that is and then we go into the literature it's only like three or four papers of people exploring the neural responses to eccentrics and well, I mean, if you think about too, right, the uh, eccentric load is three times more damaging than a concentric. So if it's much more damaging, then wouldn't it drive adaptation and you yeah. know, cause things to wire up? And then also maybe it's a, uh, like you think about like an eccentric load, like people eccentrically loading a squat, um, you know, is that an easier movement to master than the concentric piece? Like if you teach the pro, you know, like if it goes up the same way or if it goes down the same way it comes up, is something happening in terms of like driving the adaptation? You know? How many how many folks, you know, we get to teach hundreds of these seminars, thousands of people. How many folks would 
their eccentric and concentric were same pattern. Very, I found it to be very rare yeah. that someone would map their squat unless they were following us for a long time uh, to try to match their eccentric and concentric patterns. You know, um, well, I mean, we do it in the deadlift, right? I mean, that's what drives me crazy. I watch people pull the bar off the ground, and then what do they do when they put it? Uh, they go put it down. They just run around their back and they drop it. Maybe, yeah. And opposed from like pushing their hips back, straighten the knees, 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 and then once it gets back, then you bend the knees the same way it goes up. So, I mean, I, I think about that double learning constantly, like, you know, how, to, how is this movement going up and down? Are they the same? And what's the deviation? And they say, why? Like, why is it that the movements aren't? I mean, shouldn't they be the mirrors? Well, I guess we got an adductor conversation on our Instagram right now, which I guess is in line with this. What, you know? adductor? Uh, well, yeah, we... Adductor. Just matter, huh? <laughs> Well, uh, um, uh, no, just yeah. to, uh, the squat. Greg, so. Greg Everett, actually, it's probably stem. Greg Everett put out a, a deal on Instagram yesterday, and, he, and uh, either somebody forwarded me or tagged me. I, I forgot how I got on it, but he was talking about, like, only drive your knees out if you have valgus knees. If your knees yeah. are collapsing and you're getting some form of tibial torsion where your knees are, like, shooting in, drive your knees out. If your knees, if your knees aren't collapsing, don't drive your fucking knees out. And we've always said it, like, your knees should track over your instep you know, building into that, into that, um, uh, pyramid. So, I mean, we get this position where all of a sudden as people go to squat, they drive their knee out severely, which in turn makes them lift their big toe off of the ground. And we know that when people lift their big toe and maybe you can talk to this neurologically, but like when people lift their big toe off the ground to squat, they reduce their power by like 30%. we saw that within the force plates. So, I mean, just being able to put that big toe on the ground and it's next to impossible to drive your knee out past your outside of your foot with your big toe on the ground. I'm sure there's people that can do it. But uh, so, I mean, the idea of keep, keeping a neutral position. So, well, I, I always associated eccentrics because my only eccentric training, I guess, is from the manual resistance protocols and then going and working with RAF direct connection to the central nervous system because it, it's almost a cheat to identify you know, a novice between a, a, and a, also a switched on athlete and, and, and return from injury. Well, I mean, think about how many people we've done manual resistant hip on that can't maintain stability at the, or uh, maintain for, uh, driving force at the very end. So like, like they get to that point where they just collapse. But for, for listeners and Dustin, for yourself as well, we have, yeah. um, you know, basically AD, AB duction, some, some flexion extension through various joints where basically we force an athlete, we go uh, maximal voluntary concentric contraction and we'll force that athlete into a true eccentric muscle contraction through their range of motion. Yeah. Think Nordic curls, but for... Every, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah tech, every point. Tex and I have just been t- like recently for the past two weeks have been doing a lot of, a lot of this stuff tinkering for one of our projects and we just did manual resistance fly. So yeah, force like eccentric peck fly. Yeah, uh, we did that back in the day. But off of the, off of the ground here, like straight arm, bent arm, ch- trying to clock, just yeah. figure, figure things out. And uh, selfishly, personally, I haven't, I never really did those. We, ne- we never did that. We just bent, bench heavy. But you have a different sensation in terms of not only just performing the movement, but delayed onset muscle soreness. Well, think about how, uh, how the chest works, right? This motion and then also this motion. Mm-hmm. So the chest, the muscles develop not only from a press, yeah. but also... Right. Yeah. Right. So, but the, the problem is, is that, you know, you ask somebody to throw in and do some uh, pec flies 
in, you know, this functional fitness world and they're mm-hmm. going to fucking burn you at the stake. And yet, you know, you realize it's kind of like, uh, um, you know, people are like, oh, why, why do you want a close grip wrench? Well, look at the fucking overhead press. It's mm-hmm. actually a close grip position. So you want to be really good at your overhead press? You better get good at your fucking close grip. Yeah, but everyone's an idiot now. But <laughs> no, but so just but I want to give Dustin insight on when we say manual resistance. Yeah. I know a lot of our listeners and even the people who are following our training, John, probably hear us talk about it, have no fucking clue what we're talking well, about. The reason being is that it's next to impossible for us to put it on oh, no, a yeah, digital the platform right? like like I couldn't like I'll write uh, Nordic hamstrings or we'll do some uh, you know eccentric type stuff like controlled eccentrics on like a I don't know fucking banded good morning or, or some other things but to be able to come in and ask somebody because I know what would happen some guy training his garage how am I going to do manual resistance hip with no partner and I'm going to tell him like you're not you're not and then they're gonna be like oh you know it's like uh, you know, like my favorite one now is uh, people that can't do shin hops. Uh, yeah, hang on. Before we get there, let's uh, let. How do I we... have an idea. Could you theoretically? No. Hang on now. Hang on. With EMS, could you perform not not as it's built today, but could you perform a manual resistance well, with okay. an EMS? Deal? So what does EMS do? Invol- maximal involuntary contraction. What what contraction? Concentric. Yeah, concentric. But what I'm saying is, let's say, let's just use the tricep, for example, right? So if it's I want to do manual resistance tricep, so I lock my arm out as hard as I can, and I ramp up EMS on my bicep so much that it overpowers my tricep. Oh, so opposing. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, so I always thought about this, right? So uh, I, I got some really, really jiggy literature uh, when I got, when I dug into the EMS stuff, um, Charlie France made some interesting comments, the idea that like adaptation stops after 14 weeks. And the reason being is that he was only the machines that we had access to only had one, really one frequency. So then I realized that there was this kind of law of accommodation that your body accommodates to it. And he, fe- and he said that after 14 weeks, there's no more adaptation to it. So when I saw like the, you know, power dot and these other units and they brought me on, I was like, man, we got to be able to run the gamut. And, and I knew all like the different frequencies to fire different motor units. And then you have to be able to kind of work through and cycle them. And then after you kind of start losing the adaptation, now all of a sudden there's a position where now I can use them in my training. And I know uh, one of the other companies is doing it. The problem is they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Compex is trying to push this shit out but they're all fucked up the idea of like i'm gonna force a concentric contraction with this and then i'm gonna do what i call dynamic eccentrics or dynamic stretching or plyometric movements the problem is is that there's a uh, very real set amount of kind of a volume and and how you kind of arrange it in such a way that i got from tom Inkladon's buddy who did his phd on ems back in like the 90s and sent me all of his original information but there's a there's a real effect from this idea of dynamic stretching so i sometimes as you're thinking about it like Hey, here's a here's a forced concentric contraction, and now instead of like me slowly doing it, why not do some force of dynamic? But it would be on the opposing the antagonist muscles. You're using it for manual resistance, so you have it on your bicep to train your tricep through forced eccentrics. Uh, I'm doing it. I'm trying. Uh, yeah, give it a shot now. <laughs> now, yeah, let us know how that goes. Now you'll be there. What you'll people will be, uh, be controlling each other's fucking power. <laughs> so now the uh, and the other one too, which is mixing the power dots with like the uh, BFR. So doing blood flow restricted training with EMS devices, which uh, I, I played around one day doing a lactic acid threshold test on our uh, Aerodyne doing that. And uh, fuck myself up. Like, I, I, I put it on my quads. I put it on the uh, upper leg, occluded it real good, and just started cranking on the aerodyne. And uh, I got, like, a, a weird muscle, like, result that I really... Shit wasn't ordinary? Yeah, no, I was that like... That shit ain't ordinary, bro. Uh, it was almost like an electricity, eccentric, soreness, strange... Yeah, it was, it was good. But um, 
Yeah. And the problem is, is like the majority of the stuff, how much does it move the needle? And that's a big thing I constantly think about. Like whenever I hear all this shit, like, hey, this, this, and this, like, like what does the needle move? And for most, it might be just a small piece, but then you look at like the full training, like how I'm going to do it. Like what's the biggest maximized return on investment? But I mean, if, if we can, if, if Dustin can dive in and break this down and sure. be able to communicate to the high school, like, like a lot of my questions were, I love what you're doing, but how could a high school coach apply it? That goes a long way. For example, one of my concussion tests in high school for a teammate, the ATC asked the kid if he could count backwards from 100 by 7. And he's like, get me a calculator. Coach literally grabs him, said that's good enough for me, throws him back in the game. But he was looking to the other sideline for the defensive plays, and that was that was that for him. Well, but all right. But if we had the jump test in place, hey. So here's the problem. Uh, my dad made this observation to me. He said the reason that we have a lot of drunk driving these days, and my dad was a lawyer for like 52 years. And so he, uh, he, he had a lot of different very clients, and invariably he had quite a um, – back in the day when you got pulled over for drunk driving – Usually the cop would just tap you on the window and say, hey, like throw the keys about 10 foot away and say, hey, when you wake up, go find your keys or follow me home. And like DUI wasn't a big deal. Then all of a sudden it became a big deal and they started busting people. And uh, my dad always kind of made a joke. He's like, you know, when um, when DUIs weren't a big deal, we had less accidents. And I was like, why? He's like, I think people got better at drunk driving. And I was like, you think? He's like, yeah. He's like, back in the day, people get hammered and they drove around. He goes, you know, there were accidents, but not nearly. He goes, the minute that they made it like this terrible, you know, like criminal deal and they, they made these laws so deal, he goes, I just noticed that uh, like it seemed to be happening more often than it did back in the day. And I was like, really? And he goes, I just think people aren't as good at it. And I was like, so, and, he, and I asked my dad, I'm like, you pretty good. He's like, yeah, I'm one of the best at having a couple of drinks and driving around. <laughs> because he's like, back in the day, it wasn't really that big a deal. He's like, you know, you look and be like, who drank the most? Okay, you're in the back. You know, like that kind of situation. But maybe it's kind of the thing with concussions. Uh, the reason that guys are able to perform at a high level being concussed is probably because it's, um, it fucking happens every day. Practice. It's like I, I told you, when I came in the NFL, they told us you get a concussion when you got unconscious or you knocked unconscious. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. you'll know you have a concussion because you'll be unconscious. And I'll be like, well, how will I know it's a concussion if I'm unconscious? Then when I left the NFL, you're going to love this, 10 years later, they asked me, they were like, uh, in a similar meeting, you'll know you have a concussion when you feel disoriented, your bell got rung, you, your vision changes, your, you, know, you go cross-eyed, or something changes within you know, your you know, auditory responses, like something. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy in 10 years. And... Um, then they asked me, they were like, okay, uh, so when I came in, they asked me how many concussions I had, and I said zero. I'd never been knocked unconscious or other than that one time at college. Uh, but then they asked me when I left how many concussions I had. Is it based on your new protocol? I don't know, 70,000? Dusty, do you know the new yeah. NFL protocols? I know they got uh, – it's straight. you got to come off the field and go yeah. through it. But what, one thing that was trying to make me think about is what's – it's almost like the field is very close to this is it's not so much, so you hear a lot about CTE and all that kind of stuff, right, and all the old guys. So the majority of players, though, don't develop it. So you always hear the headlines, and there, there was one study that was in uh, JAMA, I think it made a big headline, like X percent, like it was like 90% of players. Get Every player, like if you played college football, you're guaranteed right. FCT. Now the problem with that study was, and the research community kind of balked at it, but that the response never makes the headline was, they only examined people who had symptoms of CTE. So yeah, all the 60-year-old guys who happen to play college football in the NFL 
who had problems, their brain showed signs of TT. And you're like, but not every, the majority of players don't go on to have these issues. And so the field is almost there, but we haven't quite got there yet. The interesting people are not the people like John who get smashed in the head every single day and um, they get CT when they're 60. It's the people that don't go on. And that looks like it may even be the majority of players. So trying to figure out what is preserving their functionality or what genetic markers that they have. I think kid who, uh, do you remember the kid at the Chiefs who uh, showed up to the practice and killed his girlfriend and then blew his brains out or put a gun in his mouth? Yeah, I remember the story. He was like, I want to say he was a rookie. They analyzed his brain and he had uh, one of the most advanced forms of CT that they had seen. And they, they hadn't like, it was a type of deal where like his level of CT was what they had seen in like, uh, you know, guys in their 60s or 70s. Belcher. So like just like all this stuff, I think that there is a genetic predisposition for some right. of these things. There is for sure. Um, like with boxers, for example, uh, with boxers, um, and this is kind of a, I don't even know how you measure this, but when they, they started doing scans of boxers, they found that the most successful boxers had the least amount of distance between the skull and the brain. So they had a smaller skull with a big brain. So when they yeah, got yeah. hit, the brain didn't slosh. So when you go box, if you have a smaller brain and a bigger skull and you get hit, you get the, the brain tends to get sloshed you get knocked unconscious so they were wondering why like hey this guy takes a ton of punches he doesn't get knocked unconscious he doesn't have a glass jaw he doesn't get knocked out and what they found was that the the brain didn't have as much room to slosh now if you take repeated blows there's not as much cushion so now all of a sudden the brain is taking more trauma so it's kind of like the genetic disposition to not get knocked out is also the same one that's guaranteeing that you're you know potentially going to get hurt i think for playing football it's the same thing you know, like, yeah. uh, I, you know, certain guys can take hits, certain guys can deliver blows, you know, some guys, uh, you know, go out and, you know, hit five times and have to go chew a bottle of painkillers because it hurts so bad. And other dudes are like, I'm fine. So I think that, um, there's, and we probably don't know what it is, but I think there's something definitely with that CTE. Oh, there's just a interesting study in military where, um, they're trying, so a lot of work you think about like your typical operator, a lot of my reach just switched over into military lately, but so if you can predict who's going to be successful for to become a SEAL or Ranger or whatever, that's great because most people don't make it, right? And it costs millions of dollars to train these guys and you lose all that money along the way. And um, this neuroscientist, he had access to a lot of baseline. They were doing baseline just brain scans. Was this dude in Newport Beach? No, no, he was out of Texas. Oh, did, what was I'll the, shoot it to you guys if you want. Did you run into a guy named Dr. Jen Newport Research Center? No, he, no. He, he did a similar deal on a bunch of Navy SEALs. Okay. And then he also approached me and I was in his study as well. So oh, cool. almost similar. The DOD yeah, yeah. was trying to basically be able to do brain scans to predict who would make it through by looking at all the dudes that had made it through. Yeah. So that was part of this study. But what he found was um, your hippocampal volume. So this area in the middle of your brain, it lets you store memories, basically. If it's a little bit smaller, only about 3% smaller than average, you're more likely to get PTSD afterward and so what he thought was if the if this memory consolidation area is a little bit smaller then you'll encode say you're driving your humvee and you have the i the bomb go off you encode driving with the explosion and then because you don't have as much memory sort of brain region real estate you'll start to associate driving with that explosion you can't break it and so the people who had a little bit smaller hippocampal volume they went on to get ptsd much more so there was this little bit of a debate is like 
do we not let people go into the services if their brain structure is a little different or become UFC fighters or NFL players? And so, but like you went through the combine, John, so they get like every piece of data they can possibly get. I remember being an intern, I was just sprinting, getting like MRIs and x-rays and throwing them on a board and they put you on a table and all the physicians come out and prod you like you're a horse or something. And so, I mean, eventually I just got to wonder if like, if you discover amyloid plaques that lead to CTE and we find a gene. So John wants to go to the NFL, they get your blood. You're like, oh, you have this genetic marker. You may have 3% more likely to get CTE. We're not drafting you. No, I mean, so that's, I, uh, I think 100%. I mean, um, I, uh, Dr. Incladon uh, had a deal for us where we went in and basically gave saliva for a uh, genetic testing. And they like analyzed like, you know, the 23andMe, like they did yeah, every yeah. gene available. And then they're able to kind of figure out, and then you kind of pay into this. And I get, you know, updates constantly as more information comes out. But I think there's, um, at least if I was an owner of a team, and I was able to get genetic testing and there was a certain, you know, we knew that certain things, you know, one-to-one, like, hey, if, uh, if you have this gene, there's a greater chance that this expresses and how it all kind of plays. And you had an opportunity to look and say, hey, you know what, um, I'm going to draft you, but I'm going to sign this. I'm going to ask you to sign yeah. this release. Uh, or, you know, I don't want to deal with this later down the road. I mean, it, you know, at least if the player has the information, like that was the kind of the thing, like... Um, uh, I, a lot of my buddies were like, well, if I had known, I would have never have done this. Uh, yeah, you would have. Uh, I just, for me, I rather get all the information like, Hey, like when they told us like, Oh, you know, you'll be fine. Concussions never, you know, like here's the deal, man, you're going to get paid money to go beat your head in. There's a good chance you're going to get fucked up. Do you want to do this? And if you do make a decision and if not, then, you know, go do something else. And there were guys that did, you know, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't physically like it. And there's other guys that are like, fuck man, I go do it again. So I, know, I, I, I just think you have to give people information. And what it looks like for you, if you basically, John, you just never retire and you probably won't get it like CT or develop the symptomology. So it's like, it's like when guy, at least in the Alzheimer's literature, especially for aging, it's once you stop going hard, like stop training, stop working out, stop doing your business and everything. Once you cognitively rest, then every, even if you have the plaques, like the structure that looks like CTE, it's not till you stop where all of your functionality, you just bottom out. So as long as you don't retire. So you, so back. exactly like what I told you guys, the day that I stop, the, going we, the wheels are going to fall the fuck off. Still headbutting a bars? No, but like here, here's the thing. Like um, you find other ways to compete and shit and you find other ways to yeah, be fucking like to. in the fight. Now, here's an interesting one. And I've told this to numerous NFL guys that I've, I've come to. Uh, that have asked me, I was like, the day that you stop becoming useful, you become useless. And so find a way to, to, to challenge yourself, pick up new tasks, like look at me, like a skill acquisition, like what are the things we're learning? What are we constantly fighting? What are we pushing on? Uh, you know, this constant state of learning. Uh, I'm so kind of fearful of, um, of not being able to, you know, learn and new, you know, take on new tasks, fail on this and like being in the process that I'm, I'm afraid if I don't continue to do that, fuck, the wheels are going to fall the fuck off. And you know, what's uh, amazing is if you get, even if your brain has some of these markers, John, like because of all the hits and stuff, if you, there's been a couple amazing studies where people they'll preserve their functions. They won't get the cognitive mental decline as long as you are trying to do new stuff. So always your whole life, always be like learning a language learn an instrument. Don't drive the same way home every day. Like these with the things. same hand. Yeah. Little stuff. Hard. Yeah. 
And um, these interventions, they're really powerful. So even if you're afraid of that, or even if your MRI markers look kind of bad, just don't retire and you'll preserve it. But you once know, you stop and you just do nothing one day, you're screwed. My dad, uh, my dad passed away recently and he told me, he said, um, uh, when I ever asked him, I'm like, you ever going to stop? He's like, I'm never going to retire. And he said, you know, every one of his friends that retired ended up dying pretty quick. So yeah. he's like, um, and he literally tried his last case and uh, then got diagnosed about a week and a half later and then was gone two months later. He got diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. So he, and the hilarious part is my brother, when he took him down to turn in his papers for uh, a leave, uh, he was like, this is the first time he had never, like when he was driving home, he's like, since I was, I think he said like, he were, he started working when he was like seven doing different things, but he worked full time since he was about 14. He's like, this is the first time since I'm 14 that I am not actively, you know, like, like I'm taking a leave of absence. I've never done this. And he, and he was 80 and, uh, like that's, you know, and he, he was still trying cases in, you know, 52 years, 80 years old and was still up there and is still, you know, uh, you know, passed away and we're still, my brother's still getting calls from people trying to hire him. My brother's like, oh, my dad died two months ago. They're like, well, I need him. And my brother's like, I'll be there. So my brother's picked up where he stayed and left off, oh, but it was pretty interesting. He's like, yeah, I'm getting all these people that are calling for dad. I'm like, sweet. He's like, yeah, I got to continue the legacy and the fight. But like that idea of um, what are you going to do when you retire? I asked my dad, I'm like, what would you do when you retire? He's like, what, fucking chase your mom around and fucking do her job? He's like, fuck. He's like, that's how people get divorced. He's like, secret to marriage, be busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah secret about everything. Yeah. So killer Dustin, this is awesome chat man yeah i'm glad uh glad um, we could get dude you uh yeah we want to get you on again but i want those glasses yeah dude I'll try to get you I, if, if we can get them man like i uh because i i got twin girls that are six and my little boy is two and uh um i was sitting there thinking like to be able to like give like let kids have that type of feedback at like six yeah. years old like because they don't even know what movement is they just know they fucking do shit and it's pretty like uh, that would be fucking so, yeah. exactly. So you would basically how they naturally learn. You're just going to instead of naturally learn whatever it is they're learning, that you would ingrain a good motor pattern from the beginning. And what we're seeing is we're doing the study in young girls at risk for ACL injury. So they play volleyball, soccer, football, basketball, and the younger they are, the bigger the brain adaptations are. And so what they're working on the next phase of the research is to make it commercial, where you could buy like a kit that has a few sensors, has the hollow lens or Google Glass. And you would, it'd be like coaching of the future is the hope. And um, that's a really, really exciting piece because it almost, it makes a lot of sense though. Like you don't learn to move by thinking, oh, I'll lift my foot up more, keep my knees over videos. No, you learn to move by just doing it. And so this allows you to just do it. And so I really think that's going to have a massive impact on the field. That'd be one thing I would change immediately. If I go back in time, my therapy wouldn't look the same at all. Awesome. We'll, we'll kill her, dude. Yeah. Do you have any speaking engagements coming up any any current research that you can direct people towards how do they get get in touch and learn more from your your work uh sure so uh, i'll be at the national ethic training convention which is in uh new orleans this year and ended towards the end of june and then i'm going to dublin ireland in the in august to speak a lot about neuroscience at uh the world congress of biomechanics and the european uh congress of sports medicine it's kind of like the american college of sports medicine over there I'm on Twitter at Dusty Grooms. Uh, you can also find my page on Ohio University. I try to respond to emails as much as I can. If you're a, a coach or a clinician, you have questions, I'll give as much information as I can to help you because 
if no one implements a lot of the stuff that I'm researching, then my whole like career has been a failure. And I really don't want people to make the mistakes I did. So just real quick to reiterate a couple of things that we've learned is from the very beginning of therapy, try to not let your athletes stare at the knee, stare at their injured joint, try to get away from that as much as you can. And so we use something called external focus where you look at the environment. So you program motion based on what you see. And another thing that's really exciting that we're working on, um, if you have a smartphone, you can use, um, you can take 360 pictures. So what we do is even at the high school level, we have the athletic trainer, say you have a football athlete, he gets hurt, he's on the table doing very boring therapy, go out with your phone, take a 360 picture of his field and get a Google Cardboard, which is 20 bucks, drop the phone in there. When they look around, it's basically a VR image. It looks like they're on the field. Have them do as much therapy as you can and make them look like they're on the field. What will happen is your brain will encode the improved muscle contraction capability, the squat pattern, whatever you're learning with the image of the field and not the clinic. Because what we're seeing a lot is that a lot of our therapy is not transferring to the real world. So we spend a lot of time in the clinic hammering you, but then we're not getting that motor learning to go to the real world very well. This is something you have in your hand today, the smartphone, and you could do it immediately really quick. And if you have a little more money, another study we've been working on is we have a, if you say you're a lacrosse player like Tex, um, say you get hurt, I would have, I would take this 360 camera. So Samsung makes a 360 video camera, put it on his helmet. And then during practice, you wear it. And I record basically first person view what your practice was like. Then the injured guy, he watches the video in VR. And if he looks around, it's as if he's you. And then he's essentially doing his exercises while he's mentally practicing. So therefore, he can't use his eyes to program motion. And all his visual feedback is lacrosse, football, volleyball, whatever it is. And then um, another, just one of the quick clinical things is try to think about maybe less feedback. So that knowledge, just telling them yes, no, good, bad. That can help what's called implicit learning. We develop a better brain activation strategy that's more likely to transfer to the field. And then the last thing that, um, and this is a big part of this Department of Defense trial is, and this is a great correlate to sports. So the Army Research Lab reached out to me after one of my talks. And so when you go back to sport, you go back to football, across whatever it is, you have to deal with a massively complex environment. And the military was having a similar problem. So a guy blows out his knee, gets an ankle sprain, whatever it is, he does all his PT, and he goes back to this complex military environment, as you can imagine, and then his performance isn't as good. And they're like, well, he's just as strong. He moves just as well. What's going on? And basically what we found is that we don't have enough cognitive or visual load in therapy. So you need to just find anything you can do. So for instance, if you don't have a lot of money, maybe just have a laptop or something, just have a PowerPoint that cycles and it shows different numbers or colors and make each number or color represent an exercise or a muscle contraction or something. You got to make them respond to the environment. I even had one uh, girl at a high school, she got $2 store flashlights, different color Kleenex on top, and she could do different colors. And then based on those colors, that would mean like a red would mean you're going up, blue would mean you're going down on a squat or maybe they would mean a different exercise or whatever it is. And just by doing that, by making them look in the environment or have a little bit of thinking load, they got to think a little more. They can't just go through three sets of 10 or whatever. That makes all the difference. So it's these tiny little things that'll drastically change how the brain will activate 
and you can drastically change how the brain will activate when they're back to their sport. And so uh, those are just some of the take-home points. I really hope that clinicians can take this information. What I find is like guys like you guys or people out in the world, they'll hear this and they'll come up with all these amazing ideas, like all these little things that people will do. So um, I really hope just with that little bit of information, you can that people can do better therapy or better training. Killer dude. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's it, people. Thanks again for coming on, Dustin. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks thanks for listening to the Premier Podcast. And strength and conditioning. conditioning. Bye. Bye. And scene. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Impressed by what you heard from the young Dr. Dustin Grooms? Of course you are. If you want to hear more, head to the old tweeter and find Dusty at Dusty underscore Grooms. Or you can go to Ohio University's page where you will see that he is an assistant professor and he's got numerous publications to sort through and flex the old cognitive muscle there. Until next time, bye!